Joe Barnett. He's got his own YouTube channel. And his book is called A South London Borstal Boys Tales. Available worldwide on Amazon as a paperback and an ebook. And we're going to discuss about doing the audio on that as well. So, all of Joe's links are going to be in the description box below this video. Urge you to support what he's doing, as well as his numerous stories of getting run over, including a story where he, like, jumps over the dock in court after he's got a big sentence, escapes, and runs up the street a mile, only to find out that the guards were in a black cab, and they ordered a black cab to run him over. That's how they apprehended him, otherwise he would have got away with that one. So he's got, he's got multiple stories of getting run over, but also might be one of the uh, few people that have been on the podcast that have done almost four decades in prison. Can you believe that? 35 years, is that correct, That's yes, correct, yeah. If you mount them up, yeah, I've had like um, 11 and a half years. Um, I've had a nine, seven years, five years, six years, numerous um, six months, nine months, numerous times. So, yeah, it mounts up to a good 35 years, a good 35 years. Well, thank you very much for coming back on as well. How old were you when the first sentence started? Um, I think I was 13. 13? And what, year, what year was that? I was actually 11, 1979, when I first got arrested. So I was 11. Punk, that was punk rock era, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It's yeah. Sid Vicious. Sid John, Vicious. John... I was listening to Holidays in the Sun in my um, Cordroys and Dr. Martin. Banging. Johnny Rotten. Yeah, Johnny Rotten. Oh, I'd to... save the queen. Yeah, I, yeah. To... I was a punk and all. I mean, yeah. you know, it was the fashion years ago, wasn't, wasn't it? it? That was what it was all. <laughs> and then from a punk to a skinhead, Scar, and I've always followed fashion, though. But yeah, so. what? What was, when did you finally get out then just to get the enormity of this? The last sentence which I've done was 2010. 2010. So you've been out for 10 years now. And on the way in, you said on your journey through the prison system, you met people like Charles Bronson, Yami. I imagine like quite, I don't know if you've seen any of our other podcasts, but you might have met a few of them as well. Yeah, I've I've, I've met quite, probably most of your, your podcasts, Sean. To be most honest. of them, most of them, <laughs> most of the podcasts which have been in prison in a, in a system yeah. are known. Yeah, Steve, Stevie Gillen, which is doing Gillen, really well. Good guy, Monkey Puzzle, Vic Dark. Yeah, Vicky Dark. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a solid guy, isn't he? Yeah, he had a big case and got a big sentence. And yeah, I know Vicky Dark. Yeah. Wow. So we do have. It's going to be endless stories here. Ash, God bless him, has sent us five pages of, of notes. And um, what we'll do then, we'll just go back to the very beginning and find out where you grew up and what that was like. Yeah, right. <clears throat> so um, I was born in Ballinweir, which was in southwest London, obviously in 1968. Um, come out of, uh, obviously from Ballinweir, I went into um, Tooting, which is southwest London, south, um, southwest 17 in London. I've had a few good curries in Tooting. Tooting Bull Bay. Yeah. So that was my roots. That's where I come from, Tooting. I'm a Tooting boy. Right. Um, yeah, moved into Tooting and um, I don't really have much, many memories of Tooting, my childhood, because we moved from Tooting when I was around probably four or five to Streatham Vale. Um but most of my family, I've got a very, very big family, by the way, um, the Lees. So my mum's a Lee. My mum's got eight brothers, um, 
very, very big family. Is that um, L-E-I-G-H? L-E-E-E. L-E-E-E. Yeah, I think it, um, it, it come, we come from traveling background, obviously. Um, so, yeah, um, was it moved into Coteford Street and... Um, COVID? Coteford. Oh, Coteford. <laughs> it sounds like COVID, doesn't it? Just at the time now, yeah, COVID Street, yeah. Um, moved into Coteford Street when I was a baby. Um, I've got two older sisters, Pamela and Angela. Pamela's 10 years older than me. Um, she's the eldest. I'm the youngest of the family, so there's three of us. I'm the only son, so I was the apple of my mum's eye, the baby. Um, I was her weld and she was my weld and I was spoiled, absolutely rotten. Um, my dad, my dad um, had met my mum. He'd just come out of the army, so he'd, he'd served, I think, 20-odd years in the army. Um, very regimental. He'd qualified as a diesel fitter in the army. Um, Wasn't that of all the shot, was he? I'm not too sure where he was based, but yeah. it might, it could well have been all the shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was very regimental and he's in the army for many years. So, um, yeah, my mum was, um, obviously, she was working in a jewellery shop at the time in Tooting Ball Bay. Um, and uh, my dad left the army to marry my mum. They had a very big, nice uh, white wedding in um, a church in Tooting called St. Boniface. Tooting. Um, he left the army to marry my mum and he took a job as a, a long distance lorry driver because he had passed his HGV 1 and 2 he was a diesel fitter in the army so he, he'd become a, a long distance lorry driver um, we moved from uh, to from Coteford Street in Tooting when I was around 5 or 6 years of age um, my mum and dad were still together at this time I don't really remember have vague a lot of memories about my dad at this time at that age because obviously he was a long distance low driver and I was only a baby, so he was hardly home. That's all I know. Um, and when he was home, he was very strict, very regimental. Um, you couldn't talk at a table. You had to clear your plate. Uh, you know, he brought us up with he did bring us up with respect at that at the time. So. Um, I don't know how, but my mum um, met a guy called John. Um, I can say his name now because he obviously passed away a few years ago. Um, his name is John McLaughlin. Uh, he comes from a big family. And he comes from Northern Ireland, a place called Derry, Northern Ireland. He was working on the um, on the roads with a big firm called Murphy's. Um, I believe he was my uncle, one of my uncles or two of my uncles' friends. So it, basically, they used to go around to my mum's house during the daytime for cups of tea and, and for bits and pieces. Um, so, yeah, um, they wasn't together at this time because obviously my dad was still around. But I've, I've become aware of John at, at, at around five or six years of age as one of my uncle's friends. Uh, I remember that even like before we moved like to, to Streatham from when I was five or six, I felt a little bit. I felt a little bit different to other kids um, in school. I think I was in nursery or Sunday school or something like that in Tooting, Franciscan Road, actually. And I, I felt a little bit different. Um, I couldn't, even at that age, I couldn't knuckle down. I couldn't get on with my work. I was a bit of a clown. I was sent, although I, I didn't want to be, I was, I, I was sent of attention. I was always getting told off by the teachers and always getting, like, detention you've got to do lines so so yeah um f from that age really 
I knew I was a little bit different around five or six. Do you think your dad being absent so much was affecting you psychologically then? Maybe, yeah. And also because my mum was ill um, from the day I was born. <sighs> my mum was only um, four foot 11. She was five and a half, six stone. And she had thrombosis of the lungs and Crohn's disease. Oh, man. When I was, when I was born. Yeah. Um, so, and where I was the only son of the apple of her eye, she was my world, you know. Of course. So uh, yeah, we moved. Um, we moved from Tooting to a, a place called Stretton Vale, which is about three miles up the road. Um, not long after moving to Stretton Vale, my mum had an argument with my dad. My dad had left, and my stepdad had moved into the house. So now my mum. Um, Pamela, my oldest sister, had moved home, had moved out by this time because she was 10 years older and obviously there was a gap there. So she'd moved out uh, around 16 to uh, meet her husband, Robert, and have her, have her own family. So there was me, um, my mum, and my sister, Angela, in Woodmanson Street in um, Stretton Vale. We moved from two to in. Um, I got put into Woodmanston um, Primary School. I think I was around age or seven or eight or something like that. Um, but even in, even in this school, uh, at playtime, I'd be getting up on the roofs, you know, um, I started smoking. I think I was about eight or nine, really young. I just felt a little bit different. Um, the other, the other kids' parents used to say to the kids, stay away from Joey Barnett, he's trouble. So I always knew that I was a little bit different and I got stereotyped even later on in life. With the tattoo on my face now, I still get stereotyped, but you just learn to, to to deal with it and cope and manage and build new strategies and new, new tools in your bag um, to understand. But you see, you know, you're gonna I'm gonna get stereotyped because of my appearance. But yeah, from from that age, uh, I used to get stereotyped as a kid. So um, we had like it, uh, my mum and dad, my stepdad John, sorry. Because he was at work, one thing what he did do was spend a lot of money. We had everything I ever wanted as a kid. I didn't go without nothing. So I wasn't put in no children's homes. I wasn't brought up in care. Although later on in life, when I actually went to the juvenile court, they'd put loads of, loads and loads of care orders on me. But it wasn't never a residential care order because they knew that I had a very good family network and a good support. Um, so, yeah, um, Joined, uh, joined Woodmanston School, and I think I was in Woodmanston School for probably about six months maximum, and I kept on getting suspended um, for messing about in school, not paying attention, and I'd be throwing things at the teacher, and I'd be messing about with other kids and pulling their backs and just not getting me head down and not working. So my mum got called up numerous times up to the school um, to visit the teacher and the headmaster about my behaviour. But um, I don't know whether it was because I was the only son and she loved me so much. My mum wasn't, wouldn't wear none of it. She just wouldn't have none of it. It's not my son, not my Joey. My Joey wouldn't do this. So I was never, ever really told off or tamed or, or told not to do this um, because she had so much love for me. I think she felt sorry for me if she told me off. It sounds a bit weird. I understand that, though. That's deep, man. That's like, you know... When I think of my mom and the love, when she came to visit me in jail and all that kind of stuff, 
it's something else, isn't it? It's just another level. Yeah, you just yeah. can't explain the love what you have for your when you brought up like that. It's um so yeah, um basically uh, my mum was uh asked to go up to school numerous uh, numerous times. I kept getting suspended. After after as I said, about six months that she said, look, we don't want him in the school no more, he's been expelled. Um I was around nine years of age at this time, and I remember at the school getting in touch with social workers, um, authorities to give me home tutor. And um, a home tutor used to come around to my house. Uh, I still remember her name, actually. Her name is Margaret King. Um, she was a lady in her 40s, 40s. And she used to come around and give me home home um, homework like twice a week. But even with the home tutor, I'd become like friends with her. And in the end, she wasn't really telling me off or telling me like not to do this and not to do that. After the time I wasn't working, I wasn't doing the work what she was putting out and she was just like them days, all right, we get on to the next one, we get on to the next one. I always thought, I always thought I could get away with not murder, you know, not murder is as that, in murder, is, but I always. Is that what led to you starting to do small crimes then as a kid? That feeling you could just get away with it? Yeah, maybe, yeah, where no one was really saying to me, you know, don't do this, don't do that. This is not the way. Because I had so much love and attention for my mother at that time, she couldn't tell me off. In the end, that was that was what put me away, you know, um, where I didn't know right from wrong. So, yeah, because um, I was aware of my mum having uh, the conditions, which she had when I was young, I, I was a born warrior and I still am a warrior now. Although I look hard and I, I look game and have tattoos all over my face, I, I'm a born warrior. And I still am today. So it was always in the back of my mind, look, you know, one day I might lose my mum um, at a very, very early age. Um, luckily enough, I didn't, you know, until obviously got a little bit older. But yeah, my mum had thrombosis and Crohn's disease. She was always ill. So John, uh, my stepdad, he came into my life when I was around seven, eight, nine, something like that. Um, we didn't know what he was like at that time, because obviously she just got, got with him. But I do know that he'd, he'd moved into her house pretty quick, so I don't know where he'd come from. Um, it wasn't like he was a nobody, because he had uh, like a few brothers which was living local to us. We was always visiting that. We called it our uncles, all those step-uncles. So, yeah, John came into my life probably around nine, nine or ten or something like that. He'd give me everything. We used to go camping every weekend, like years ago. I'd go to Laysdown and Margate. Ramsgate and I've got very good fond memories of us when we was camping. I remember one day, I think I was about 10 or 11 maybe, we camped on a field and we got there like late at night in the back of a van and put the tent up and about four or five in the morning, like it was saying it in the tent and my dad went out, my stepdad went out the front and he realised we'd actually camped on a bald field, sorry. We'd run outside the tent, put torches on and we were surrounded by bulls, do you know what I mean? <laughs> So, yeah, we'd done all that when we were kids. We used to go out camping and had all the latest fashion, all the latest clothes. There was nothing I wanted, didn't want as a kid, anything I ever wanted and I got. Um, but I noticed that there was a lot of arguments um, with John and my mum. Now, bearing in mind, my mum was only four foot nine and she was only five and a half, six stone. Uh, John wasn't big, but he was a man and he was, he was an adult. 
he was Irish, he had a deep accent and he was, he was very violent, you know. Um, I remember him, like, he used to come home, have big arguments and what he would do, he'd go to work the next day and we'd all be like worried of what he's going to come home from work, like whether he's going to start when he comes home. You know, one of them atmospheres, really scared, to be honest with you, I was scared, we was petrified. Um, and it soon come, it soon become um, apparent that John used to go to the pubs. When he used to rather my mum, he used to go work during the daytime and then finish work and then hit the pubs. And then he wouldn't come out of the pubs until 10, 11 at night. So at four or five o'clock every, every afternoon for many, many years, me, my mum and my sister, my older sister, Angela, we was like a bag of nerves. If it come past five o'clock, we was like out the window, you know, talking to other family members on the phone. Is he home yet? Is John home yet? No, he's not home yet. Because what he used to do, Sean, is um, he used to come home and he used to smash the house to pieces right in front of us. I'm not talking about smashing the table. I'm talking like the, the windows, the front windows, the back windows, the TV. Uh, very, very, very violent. Um, I didn't... I didn't notice him being physically violent towards my mum hitting her, but he used to throw things. And I remember once he he threw a china plate at my mum's uh, head. Um, I was around nine mm. and it hit her in the eye. Oh. And although I, I was hanging out, uh, the police got called numerous times. He was put into prison for beating my mum up, hitting my mum. Um, so, yeah, that was, uh, although we had the love, we had the attention, we had the money, I had the family network, and I had the support too. Um, because my mum had quite, has got quite a few brothers, like seven brothers, there's eight of them, I think, they all used to like say to my mum, you know, I've got to offer her help and, you know, you shouldn't be with him. We can see what he's doing to you. And my mum used to protect him for some reason. I could never get my head around it. And it, Later on in life, I asked myself, why would my mum want to put someone so dangerous in front of her kids like that? Um, I still don't know the answer now. Is it love? She loved him too much? Was it fear? She was too scared to get away from him? It couldn't have been fear because she had a, very, a lot of support around her. And if they wanted to get rid of him, believe me, they would have got rid of him, you know, um, in one way or another. So it wasn't out of fear. I just don't understand why she stayed with him. So yeah, um, this did, did have did have a big massive knock on effect to me. Um, I was literally a bag of ner I was a nervous wreck. Me and my sister, uh, four or five o'clock each night. If he wasn't home, me and my sister would be we'd, we'd run up into the bedroom. We'd both be in the same bed. We'd be cuddling each other and we'd be shaking and crying our eyes out. Mum would be in the room trying to say it's it's okay, it's okay. He's not going to come home violent. This went on and on and on for years and years and years. Um. I don't know whether like um, other parents had known or heard about the violence what we was having at that time and whether they'd told their kids stay away from them because there's a lot of trouble going on. I don't know. But um, all I know is that is where I got my attention when I was out of the house and I was, I was being naughty. Um, so really... That was the first time, that was the turning of my life when I become a criminal um, at an early age. So anyway, one afternoon, it was around five o'clock. 
yeah, again, John, John didn't come home from work. My mum had an argument with him. And my mum must have had an instinct to get us out of the house. Um, a few doors along, we had neighbours, which were very good friends of my mum. Um, Maureen and Tom, God rest their soul, rest in peace, they've passed away now. But um, for some reason, my mum said, this, this once, this is once. It never happened before, but just this once. My mum said, we're going to go just for a night. We're not going to be in here because he's obviously not home and we don't know what he's going to come home like. So we uh, went up to Maureen and Tom's house. It was uh, it started getting dark. It's probably around nine, ten o'clock. Um, we went to the front window. We was looking out the front window to see if he was out there because it was only a few doors along. So we could actually see our house from the neighbor's house. It was opposite. So we could see. And um, we went to the window and I couldn't believe my eyes. The house was in about 100 foot of flames in fire. Um, I heard the sirens. I see the blue lights. My mum said, no, no, don't go out the front. Don't go out the front. He was still out the front screaming, where are you? Where are you? I'm going to fucking kill you. Where are you? He was searching the street looking for us when the house was on fire. Um, so, yeah, the house got burnt down to the ground, literally to the ground. Um, John, John got arrested. I was only a nine or ten at this time. So I don't really know too much about it. But all I do know is John got arrested for the arson um, and he received 18 months in prison. So whilst he was in, whilst he was in prison, I become even closer to my mum because he wasn't there now and my mum spent more attention and gave me more love and more affectionate because there was I was the man of the house. Well, I was only a boy. I was I took on the, the lead as the man of the house. Um, so obviously we had to move out of that house because it had been burnt down. Um, I haven't got a lot of memories about my childhood around Stretton Vale at that time. I do know I've met like a few mates along the way. Um, we used to run along the roads as kids, breaking car aerials, and we used to play knock down ginger, um, knocking on people's doors and running away and getting up to the tired, tired piece of cotton to people's someone's letterbox of a night time and go out the front and start pulling it, like winding them up. I was, I was getting up to them types of tricks at that age. Do you know what I mean? Um, at, even at that age, I was hanging about with boys like probably three or four years older. So when I was 11, I was hanging about with 14 and 15 year olds. And at that time, they was like nicking cars, nicking motorbikes. Um, they used to call them Honda C70s, the old mopeds, the step-throughs. Do you remember them? They got like a white shield around the front of them. Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. So we, at 10 or 11, I was stealing motorcycles. <laughs> um, instead of like going around my mate's house and watching films and I was stealing at 10, 11 years of age. Um, so you became a good driver, did you? Later on in life, yeah, I was a really, really good driver. I was, I was actually a getaway driver at the end of my career <laughs> because I was so good on the wheel. Um, on motorbikes, also in cars, you know. Mm. Um, I was stealing, stealing cars at 13 years of age. Mark 1 Escorts, you could start them up with a front door key, like Mark 3 Cortinas and the old Granadas and Rovers. Yeah, so... So anyway, Sean, so um, the house got burnt down um, and we moved again to a place called uh, Mitcham Lane, which is in Streatham, uh, South West 16. 
um, that's that was only about two miles away from Stretton Vale from where, so we was local again. But it was on a new estate, a new lot of mates. So I was branching out and I was meeting new friends. So we moved into we moved into Cunliffe Street. Me, my mum, Angela, and whilst John was in prison, my dad had come back home to live with us. So my mum had sorted it out, and my dad, and my dad had come back home. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't last long. Um, he used to go on the long on long distant journeys, uh, come back, and John had been in the house. My stepdad had been in the house, so there was violence. Um, not punt ups neither. My dad would go to the my stepdad. Sorry, would go to the kitchen, get a, a kitchen knife out, and trying to be stabbed. My, my dad, he'd, he'd chase him up the road, and he did actually like cut his elbow off later on in life, and and he bled to death. Bless him. Yeah, it's really a fucking heavy childhood, Sean. Um, <sighs> fucking really heavy shit. So, um, my dad, uh, yeah, look, come back from a long distance, long, 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 long journey. My my stepdad was there. The same thing. The same thing started happening again. What happened in the previous address? There was my mum and dad was arguing a lot. Um, he was going going to work, coming home from work, drunk. Um, but this time, I was around 13, 14. Um, so I actually remember him being physically now, physically uh, violent towards my mum. He used to pick her up and chuck her around the, around the house like a rag doll. Bearing in mind, he was like 5 foot 10 and about 14 stone. She was only a frail little, very ill woman. Um, so he, he was very, very violent. But... We got on with it because that's what it, it was. What it was, I didn't have no alternative. I didn't have no choices. I was too young to do anything. It wasn't like I was going to stand up to him and, and fight him because I was petrified of him. Um, I was also also aware of his reputation, what he'd what he'd got through stabbing people and knifing people and having fights in pubs, and then he'd get beaten up because he couldn't fight with his hands. So he'd get beaten up in a pub, and then he'd come home. He'd get a sword, he'd walk in a pub and he'd start chopping everyone up in a pub, waving a sword about like a nutcase, chopping everyone up in a pub. Um, it was, so I was petrified. So I wasn't in a position to, to say anything or do anything. I was just used to, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I've, moved into, I've moved into this new, um, new area, new estate on Cunliffe Street and there was a little green opposite us. We used to call it the green. We used to play football in there. Um, there's a set of flats opposite us. Um, the new guys, what I've met, was only, was a few years older than me also. Um, and by this time, they was, was stealing cars, we was um, glue sniffing at that time. I started uh, sniffing Evo stick around 12 or 13. Um, I think there's was a punk rocker when uh, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten and all that lot come in. God save the Queen. So, Banned from top of the pops. Exactly, yeah. So I was with all the fashions. I was a, a, a punk, a skinhead, and stranglers, buzzcocks. That's it, yeah. I was into all brilliant, that. brilliant memory, yeah. Sean. So, um, so yeah, um, I got put into um, Erdley School, which was only about four or five doors along from where we was living. This was a primary school, and. 
basically uh, you could go out my back garden, climb over the fence, and you'd be in the school. So during the daytime at, at um, playground, I'd be like climbing on the school roofs, uh, messing about, and you know, with different mates and. After a time playing truant, bunking off. I was a really, really troubled kid, you know. Um, I did meet a few few good mates there, and I'm still good mates with them later on in life now. But as I said to you earlier on previously, a lot of kids' parents warned them about me. So they didn't give me a wide berth, but when they was playing with me, it was naughty to them. It wasn't normal. It was naughty. That was... I was like pushing the boat out a little bit to, to... so when school had finished um, like if I wanted to go around one of their houses or knock on the door I'd knock on their door and the parents would open the door and they'd say no 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 he's not in he's not allowed out with you he's not allowed out with you you know so I, as I said I've got stereotype for a year from a baby from young um, and yeah we started um, I started sniffing glue Evo stick 13 years of age. I got kicked out of the early school very, very quick. Not a, probably worse than even in the three months and got thrown out there. Um, and my home tutor, I remember my home tutor coming back and she was giving me, she was giving me home, home, home lessons indoors. This went on until obviously I got to me, uh, me second, me second, me school, uh, the home tutor. So, of a daytime, I was by, by this time, 13, 14, we was out um, stealing cars, stealing mopeds. Uh, I wasn't playing with kids what wasn't messing, what wasn't internet type of things. I didn't, straight goers didn't attract to me. They didn't, they didn't appeal to me, straight goers. Um, I felt better with people what was more like myself. For, sounds a little bit weird, but that's where I felt the best. So obviously I went with the wrong people from the start. Um, and where I was only skinny and small as a kid, I still am now, <laughs> but where I was only skinny and small as a, as a kid, I was game. Very game. And known as like an half a daredevil. So basically if anything needed doing, they'd come and ask me to do it. One day, I was 13, I remember this. Um, down the bottom of my street, there was a, an Indian family and they had like a pack of dogs wild in the back garden. Well, I don't know why, but I was brought up with dogs. My mum used to have Alsatians, German Shepherds. So I used to love dogs, pets. I've always loved them. I still do now. And uh, during the daytime, sometimes, I used to go and knock on these doors and I used to say, can I come out the back and play with the dogs to, to this family? Sounds a bit weird, but they used to let me in and with our mates and we used to play out the garden. We, we used to even take the dogs for walks, you know? At age 13, you should say, yeah, go on, you can take it round the block. I remember one of them was a whippet, one was a greyhound, and there was another, um, uh, a wolfhound or so, Irish wolfhound, something like that. So for, for around 13 years of age, I knocked on the, on the person's door to take the dogs out on my own, and there was no one in. Well, out their back garden was just a little wall. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll take them out quite a lot. So I'm, I'm going to jump up on the wall and jump over the fence just to have a little have a little play of the dogs. And I jump I jumped over the fence and direct, as soon as I jumped over the fence, the, the dogs run for me. And the greyhound I remember vividly a, a brown greyhound latched onto the side of my face 
And that's the scars on the side of my face there now. Ooh. And this was the same dog that I was taking out previously, only a few days before. Um, so the ground latched onto the side of my face and it was pulling down. I was only 12 or 13. And then the whippet got involved and the whippet was doing me in the eye. What? Yeah, so, and the owners of the, of the dogs wasn't in. So I went to the floor and basically I was just ripping my face to, face to bits, these dogs. What about the wolfhound? The wolfhound didn't get involved. That's a big thing as well. No, it didn't get involved. It was more the greyhound oh. and the whippet. It was the ground that done the most damage. Mm. But yeah, um, someone must have heard, one of the neighbours must have heard me screaming on the floor. It felt like I was, I was on the floor for minutes and like a long time. But obviously it was only probably around two minutes. Um, one of the neighbours looked out of the wall. He'd seen me on the floor and quickly jumped over the fence, threw me over his shoulder and run me back along to my house, which is only a few doors along. My mum and... John run out, run out of the house with towels, white towels, and they put them over my head. And the, both of the towels was they was wringing them out with blood. Um, I remember the ambulance coming, taking me into hospital, and I had skin graft. Uh, I got really got attacked by the dogs in a bad way. That's one memory I have of um, when I was a kid. Um, my, I remember my stepdad going back round there. Obviously, I'd had surgery by then. My face was all in stitches. But I remember my stepdad going around there, jumping over the back, and he had a, a little fireman's axe, and he killed the three dogs. Yeah, he literally killed the three dogs. So, because oh. I remember the, the, the actual owners of the dogs coming around to the house saying, your stepdad's just killed our dogs, and it was a big, massive argument about it, what happened. But obviously, my dad was a bit of a... a a wild man and a nutcase, so they quickly went off, you know. Um, so yeah, my dad killed the dogs. I had that, um, had surgery. Um, so when I when I joined secondary school, I think I was around, is it 14 or 15 you joined secondary school, Sean? When did you join secondary school? What? I might have jumped it, jumped ahead. Oh, yeah, because you finish what you finish when you're 15, don't you? You're 16. Yeah, yeah. So it must yeah, be so, about 11, 12. Right. Yeah. yeah, I've lost a few years. Sorry, Sean. It's alright. Yeah. So, um, a little bit about during the daytime before I joined secondary school. Um, older boys would be knocking on my door, like for me to go out to to play with them, and obviously I'd be going out of them. But um, I'd be staying out. So I'd I'd be saying to my mum, "So what, mum? I'm staying around my mate's house." And my mum would be thinking we was round me round my mate's house, he's standing in my mate's house. Um, but really what we was doing it was um my mate one of my mates who's a few years older than me, used to break into uh, warehouses and factories, and because I was so small and so skinny and so game, I was he used to put me through the window. So I was stealing like out of factories doing commercial burglaries at like 13, 14 years of age, being put up. Um because I was so game and I would never, I wouldn't say no to no one. I just didn't know how to say no. And and, and I thought, look, this is where I'm getting all my attention. This is obviously where I want to go. This is where I want to be. But these older boys would give me so much love and attention. It was like, like a second family to me. Um, didn't, I was so so gullible and so green at the time. I just didn't have a clue what, what they actually wanted me for. Do you know what I mean? I thought, 
I've just they've just taken me on as one of their own, as one of their friends. So yeah, I was out stealing cars for them. Um at young age, 13, 14, I was driving, stealing cars. And and I never ever got caught neither for stealing cars mm. or bikes. I was that good on them. I remember getting into a I remember one day, I remember this vividly, it was really funny. Um it was a Mark III Cortina, a 2000E. It had a black vinyl roof on it. And I was I was only small. I was probably about five foot two and probably about seven stone. I probably looked about nine or ten years of age. But I was 13. And I was in this car driving. I one of my mates in the front and two of my mates in the back. There's the music blaring. The windows are open. It's right like messing, having, having a good time. And I looked beside me, come up to a set of lights. But I had to sit on a cushion to make me bigger because I couldn't see over the windscreen. I was that I was that small. So I had to sit on this big cushion, puff, put a coat on, puff myself out and make myself look bigger. One of them ones to get away with it. And uh, I remember coming to the lights one day and I looked beside me at the lights and I couldn't believe my luck. My headmaster was, was beside me of my school in another car. And he's, he's looked at me like that. And I've looked, I've, I remember looking away like that and he, he, he was staring at me, staring at me. He kept looking at me. And I thought, oh no, oh no, oh no. But yeah, a few miles up the road, blue lights come behind me. And obviously the police was behind me. So we got chased. Um, and I went off. I remember going off road. I got to Tootenbeck Common. And I, I, I started driving across the common. All through, smashing the car to pieces, driving through the trees. Uh, the police did come on the common, but they wouldn't come into the trees because they had a bigger car. So I don't know. They weren't that mad. But I, I was crazy. So I just went into the trees. <laughs> and I had my school uniform on. Still had a school uniform on. <laughs> so we quick, I quickly got away from the police as far as, as I could. We dumped the car and got out of it. Anyway, we, we just walk along across the common and the police, the police are all around us and they're looking for us. And we, we, we started like messing about like we'd actually come onto the common. So one of my friends picked a, a leaf up from the ground and the police come up to us. What are you doing around here? You've just been seen getting out of that car. And like we swore black and blue, it wasn't us. <laughs> no way. And my mate had a good idea. He said, no. He said, we're over here on a school thing. He said, we've come over here to look at the trees and the leaves because we're doing a program on it. We're doing a study on it in school. I don't know how I got away with it, but the police actually wore it and let us go. Whether they'd, they'd know it as us, I don't know up to this day, but they'd let us go, do you know what I mean? So we got away with it from that. Um, I remember another time, uh, one of my mates from Tooting, because I was known through Tooting, Streatham, Ballam, all around southwest London. By, by, by this age, I was known, very had a big reputation. And um, one day, my mate, I knocked on my mate's door, I said, come on, we're going out for a day. And there was um, a piece of like waste ground um, in Wimbledon, and we used to call it Stink Bomb Alley. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. <laughs> Stink Bomb Alley. So you go over here, and it's like a track for bikes, like a motorbike track. So one day, um, I said, come on, come on, mate, we're going to steal a motorbike. So I went into uh, someone's, someone's front garden. And them days, you didn't have to break the lock. I didn't have steering locks on it. It was just like, like a little plug underneath the white shield. So I pulled the plug off, pushed it up the road. Anyway, we stole the bike. So we're riding on the pavements, no crash helmets on, 
two up on the pavement, 12, 13 years of age, whizzing up the pavements like 30, 40 mile an hour. It seemed that fast. It probably weren't. It's probably about 10 or 15. But it, say, it seemed that fast. And uh, I remember coming around the corner at Tooting uh, Broadway, aiming corner, which was just around the corner from Tooting Police Station. I knew the police station was there, but I couldn't see no, I couldn't see no fear or I didn't see no arm in, in it at that time. I was having too much fun to even think about the police. And I've come around the corner and bang, all of a sudden, I've run over a policeman, a copper. Mm. He went flying, literally flying. He cut all his chin, he was on the floor. I injured him, fell off the bike. We both fell off the bike. I'd run, got away from him. But I don't know how, but we'd got away from him. Got home. The next morning, the police knocked, a knock on the front door, and the police knocked on the door, and the police said um, to my mum, can we, uh, can we speak to Joey? Um, my name's John on record, because uh, my real dad's name was Johnny Barnett, and, and my name was John on the birth certificate. My mum nicknamed me Joe, because there was two Johns, so I, I took the name as Joey. So I don't, if someone called me John, I wouldn't even know what they look like. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't even, I mean, I wouldn't even look at them. My name's Joey. So, so anyway, so this policeman has knocked on the door. Hello, uh, Pauline, speaking to me, mum. He knows her because obviously where I'm getting up to so much that I was getting arrested all the time, you know, at that age. So this policeman knocked on the door and he said, oh, I need to come in, Pauline, to speak to Joey. What's it about? What's it about? My mum was saying, we're terrible when we get indoors. Joey, my mum called me. I've come down from the bedroom. I said, hello. All, look, looking all shocked. you know what I mean? Like, I ain't done nothing wrong. <laughs> I couldn't believe my luck. It was a local policeman. It was a community policeman of my area. <laughs> like the local neighbourhood watch person, like the community policeman. I'd run him over. And it was him. So, and he'd knew me by, by face, by my name. He just knew me because I was getting arrested so much. And I swore black and blue. I said, no, 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 no. I said, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. My mum was sticking up for me because I was the apple of my mum's eye. Not my Joey. Not my, no, he won't do nothing like this. He's been, he's been at school. He's, he's, wherever he, he's, he ran his mate's house, proper cover me traction. I'm not him, but they still took me, they took me in the police station. They didn't do me for knocking the policeman over because it was a genuine accident. I don't know whether they had charges then for, Reckless driving or any, I'm all, I'm sure they'd chuck the book at me driving without due care and attention. Reckless driving, taking and driving away, and 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 all the rest of it. So, yeah, so I've run a police, I've run a policeman over. Um, in Tooting Police Station, Aiming Corner, which was my local police station, at the age of 11, 12, 13, the coppers actually know me, knew me by my first name. Even at that age, they used to come in the station in the charge room. Not you again, Joey. Used to call me Joey. Not even John, and they knew my real name was John. They got that familiar with me. They used to call me Joey. Do you know what I mean? And put me in a cell, make me sweat in a cell. It didn't used to bother me even at that age. It just wasn't a deterrent for me, and put me in a police cell. It didn't seem a shock to me, if you know what I mean, Sean. It didn't frighten me. Um. So basically, I was at Ballam Juvenile Court. Every single week as a juvenile, I dragged my mum through so many courts. Um, and they kept her, every time I went to court, it was either for taking and driving away, 
um, at this time, criminal damage, um, trespassing, you know, things like that. Only pet, really petty crime. So every time I went to court, I used to cry. Like, and I was only skinny. I used to stand in the dock and cry. And I think the judge used to feel sorry for me. <laughs> my mum was only small. My mum was only skinny. And she used to cry. And it was only me, me, me and my mum in court. And the judge used to like, not become a friend, but he used to talk to me like he knew me, like one of his, got familiar with, with the local judge in my local like juvenile court. At that age, they knew me by my first name. Do you know what I mean? I don't know, I was probably nicked about probably about 10 times. I had about 10 different charges of taking and driving away and all these minor all these minor cases. Um, and I, was just, I kept getting like different things. They kept putting care orders on me, but it wasn't a residential care order because they knew I had a very good family network and good support. They obviously didn't need to take me into care because my family was there. Um, so they kept putting care orders on me. This went on and on and on until one day I went to court with my mum and the judge said, look, he said, look, Joey, he used to call me Joey, not John. He used to say, look, Joey, you know, this is now taking, taking a piss. You've got X amount of offences here. We've been seeing you for the last 12 months, every single week, at least once a week, which was the truth. You know, I dragged my mum through courts all, all, of her, all of her life, bless her. And then uh, after probably getting about 15 um, offences and convictions, I went to court one day and the judge said, right, Joe, we've got no, or John, we've got no alternative but to sentence you to three months detention centre. At that time, I didn't know what, what he was even, what he meant, detention centre. I didn't even know what the word was. I didn't know what, what was it a home or was it a prison? My mum was in shock. I was in shock. And before I knew it, like some big airy ass jailer put his arms around me and took me downstairs in the court, below the courts in the cells. I remember my mum, like having a visit, they let my mum in to visit me. And uh, I was saying, I said to my mum, mum, can I come home? Can I come home? Why can't I come home? And my mum didn't even know what was going on at the time. She, she said, well, we're going to try and talk to the judge. We're going to try and to, whether she was just saying that to try and make me feel better, I, I don't know. But I've got three months um, detention centre and there was two other boys in the um, in the uh, rooms below the courts in the cells waiting to go to the detention centre with me. So there were three of us. It felt like hours and hours and hours and hours. It was probably a couple of hours. The minibus come. Was it their first time? The other two boys? I believe it was, yeah, because they were both crying too. So you were all discussing what's going to happen next. Yeah, we, we was all frightened. And and the, these jailers was, was tormenting us, you know, saying to us, well, you think you're hard, you boys? Wait until you get here. You're going to meet your, you're gonna meet your mark now. Let's see what you say now. And they was like really, really putting the fear of putting the fear of God into us, frightening the life out of us. So a few hours later, I remember the minibus coming. You ought to just keep the water on the floor because it gets in front of the camera. Sorry, mate. It's okay, thanks. By the way, this is my first time on camera, so I, Oh no, man, you're doing brilliantly. You're I natural. Don't, I don't come across as nervous, but I'll tell you what I am. You're a natural. I'm, I'm actually myself. 
eating myself. It's that energy that's fueling you, what you're saying, and it's gripping, and you're just naturally speaking naturally. It's great. For some reason, you've got that um, thing about you where you, you you make you make me feel warm and you make me feel at ease. Not a lot of people have got that, Sean. Mm. Uh, and I've got a very good judge of character. Yeah, thanks. Um, I can. So I got through prison. Listen to everybody's <laughs> stories. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell. But you're one of my own. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah, why I'm probably yeah. talking so much. Oh, cheers. Um, Keep I've, it up. Keep it up. This is what we like. I've actually, Makes my job easy. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually turned up a podcast down where I've been that worried and that like scared yeah. about going on camera. I've actually yeah. turned them down. So. No, you're really good. You make me feel so welcome. That's why I'm talking so much. Maybe I need a bit of a break. <laughs> Forget what I'm saying half the time. <laughs> Flying, so, flying very well right now. You've got just got sentenced to three months. Right. So anyway, so we're below the courts, waiting for the van. The van uh, arrives eventually after felt like a lifetime, but it was a few hours. I remember three three of us, two up me and two other kids, um, getting um, handcuffed to our big officers and put into the back of a minibus. It was a full transit minibus. I knew it was a full transit because I, I stole a few of them at this time. <laughs> And I was actually looking at the front of the driver thinking, Jesus, that should be me driving that. <laughs> One of them ones. But they chained us to the bars on the minibus. They had bars going up the windows and they chained us to the bars. It felt like a lifetime, the journey on the way up to HMP Send. Um, I do talks though, it's a women's prison. Yeah, I actually went back there as an adult, um, as a sea cat later on in life and it was a completely, totally different prison. But... Um, when I was there, when I'd done a detention centre there, if you got through that detention centre and you still, you know, it's a very, very hard, strict bullying, so much intimidation that we went through so much in there. I'll tell you what happened in a minute, but we'll get What's to it that. like arriving at that place? I was absolutely petrified, like petrified. I probably had to tuck me, tuck me, um, my trousers in me, into my socks to stop me shitting myself. Sorry about talking like that, but that's, fine. that's how scared. It might not have been that frightening actually getting there, but it's what they were saying to us on the way up there. Like, threatening us that we're going to get beaten up at reception by the other officers um, and that we're not so hard now. And, you know, so it felt like a, felt like a lifetime, but a few hours we got there. It was in a place called Ripley, um, just up the A3. Just around here. That's it. It was in a place called Ripley. Mm -hmm. So I remember going looking out the uh, minibus windows and seeing these big, massive double gates locked with barbed wire around them. There wasn't cameras at that time, what I can remember, but it was very, very an intimidating looking place. Right, so um, we had to come out of the minibus one at a time. So I was, I was the second one out of the minibus, but... What I do, what I do remember is hearing the screams of the first person what went through reception. Ah, heard him. Ah, heard him screaming. And you know, by the time I'd got in there, I was like a literally a bag of nerves, literally. So, I it was like it was like the officers knew me because the way that he was talking to me, like swearing at me, calling me a cocky little C U N T. You're not going to be so brave in here, boy. You're not a name in here. You're just a number. And you, we're going to knock the living shit out of you in here. So got to reception. Um, 
got told to uh, go in the shower, strip, start bollock naked, got put in the shower. I remember it was a cold shower. It wasn't hot. It was a freezing cold shower and we was made to get in the shower. I was in there for a few minutes, absolutely freezing, got out of there shivering. And then they cut my hair. They shaved all my hair off at reception. And I thought, why, why cut my hair off now? Why not do it before I got in the shower? Because I was itchy and everything. And I come out and I, like, I was bald, come out bald. So it felt like a long time I was in reception and it felt like I was going through a lot. I was going through hell. What the officers were talking to me about and what they were telling me, threatening me. Uh, you know, they I was only small and skinny and they was like big pumped up blokes and you could see that, that, you know, they were very strict and the regime was very, very hard in there. You had to be really hard to get through that, believe me. Um, I actually witnessed a few suicides, even at that age, like when we wow. actually got into the detention centre, yeah. Witnessed them? Yeah, I actually witnessed a few, a few like... What method of suicide? Um, a big razor, those handing out big razors, even at 13s and 14s, and talking about self-prevention of suicide, they was giving us big razors, you know, at that age, and kids were cutting their wrists because they couldn't get through it, and that was an easy way out for them. How does that make you feel at that age, seeing that? I just didn't think I was going to be able to get through it. I couldn't see no light at the end of the tunnel and I really couldn't see myself getting out at the end of it. Um, it was that bad in there. I was that scared. So basically, um, I come through reception after about an hour. Um, they give me a, a two sheets, a blanket and all my bed, all my kit. They put me in, a, took my silly clothes off me. Uh, they put me in a pair of grey trousers, a pair of black shoes, green shirt and a brown tyre or something like that because you, you had to um, have different coloured tyres and you had to progress to actually get out. Obviously, I wouldn't let you out before the end of your sentence. So I remember um, going through reception, putting all the kit in my hands and the kit was so big and so high, it come past me and I couldn't see. I was only small. And there was a, a corridor. So one of the officers or two, two of the officers said to me, right, this corridor you're gonna you're gonna go on now. It's called the M1, which a lot of people who've been on this pod, podcast will lot will be familiar with it if they've been in Send. They call it the M1. It was notorious. Um, and two of the officers said to me, "Right," he said, "There's an officer waiting at the top of the M1." He said, "Run up there as fast as you can to the top, without looking back, and I want you to get up there rapid." So well, so scared. I said, "Okay." And he smacked me around the face and he said, what did you say? And I said, okay. He smacked me again around the face and he said, no. He said, you, you, you say your name and number and so, okay, sir. You've got, to, you've got to call me, sir. And when anyone, when any officers or anyone in, in that type of authority talk to you, you've got to say AJ8141 Barnet, sir, which was my name and number. So anyway, smack, after being smacked twice around the face, coldly, um, he said to me, run to the other end of the M1 with your kit in your hand. So as I'm, as I'm sprinting, but I couldn't really sprint because I've got this kit in my hand, so I'm running along, and all of a sudden I didn't see it, but there was a little doorway off of this M1 corridor, and an officer put his foot out and it sent me absolutely flying. My kit went flying. I hit the ground. I was crying. I got up crying. I was in a bad way. Obviously, I was scared. So I got to the other. I got to the office at the end, 
um, I noticed there was like a few cells there where he was standing. And uh, he said, you didn't run fast enough. You didn't run fast enough, Barnet. And he smacked me again around the side of the face. Uh, yeah. From there, I was put into um, a single cell, which is where you go for the first week. It's called um, induction. So your first week in this detention centre, everyone's got to go through this procedure to get onto the main dormitory. Um, in the single cells. So the next morning, uh, my door got opened up. An officer come to my door and he, he actually gave me a toothbrush. He gave me a, 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 kneeling, a kneeling mat and he asked me and a few other of the kids to follow him. We didn't have a clue what he was talking about. All we knew is we had to follow him. So basically we started following him and we, we, we come onto the M1 corridor and he said, right, he said, you start here. He said, you stop up the top top there so one of my friends or one of the boys I was with not a friend at that time he said what have we got to do he got a slap on the side of the face you talk to me and say sir and your name and number he got so we was getting brutalised we was getting really beaten up um, and yeah we have told to uh, scrub this M1 corridor with toothbrushes each on these kneeling pads so for hours and hours and hours from, I think it was from nine in the morning until 11 o'clock, maybe 11.15, we were scrubbing the M1 corridor um, for the whole week, for the week. I remember 11, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at dinner time, we had to go to the dining um, hall and we had silver trays then. So we had to, we was all made to sit down and eat at dinner. And if we spoke, it, it was, there was a table, a round table, and there was four of us at a table on each table, numerous tables in the in the dining room. And if we spoke, one of the officers would come up and literally punch you in the face, um, or slap you in the face. And that wasn't the end of it. You know, the next the next day you'd get punishment for it. He'd say to you, right, stand in the corner of the corridor. Numerous times I remember standing on the M1 on this corridor, and all the it was in the middle of the winter and there was windows up and down the corridor with cages on and it was absolutely freezing and I remember him opening all the, wind, all the windows up and I remember standing there facing the wall for like seven, eight hours a day during the day I was made to stand there and if I turned around once and, and an officer see me turning around you'd come and get beat up you'd come and get a slap you faced the wall that was so that was the first week um, of me entering the send detention centre. That's the top of punishment I went through the first week. And because, as I say, I was skinny, I was small as a boy, um, I was mouthy. Um, I wouldn't listen to no one. I wouldn't listen to my mum. I wouldn't listen to my dad. I wouldn't listen to my stepdad. I wouldn't listen to a judge. i just done what I'd done. So I was getting beaten up quite a lot in there. Um, as luck had it, in this in these, these single cells where we had to go for a week at a time, as you looked outside your window opposite us, it was a dormitory. What made me feel better was I see one of my best mates, like from one of my local area. He was in the dormitory opposite me, and he was talking to me out the window. He was he was a, he was a few years older. I remember I was thirteen and he was fifteen, and I was shouting over to him. 
He's, I, I, he's, I like to mention his name. His name is Darren Bateman or Mark Bateman, brother. Yeah, yeah. We just don't want to mention names of anybody who will like call in. Say, of course, yeah. Take that down. I'm going to sue you, that kind of thing. One of them, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, aware yeah. of that. I'm aware of that. Okay. Don't want to implicate no one. Um, so, yeah. Was it John, yeah, it was John Bakeman, um, one of my good friends. He's actually passed away now. Got, that's why I mentioned his name. He's gone. Um, he died of a he died of a drug overdose. Mm. He became a he became a heroin addict and started injecting, and um, he died a few years oh a few years later. Um, so yeah, he was talking he, he was talking to me out the window, um, just trying to like comfort me really, Sean, you know, and say you're going to be all right, Joe. Once you get on in the dormitory, you're with all us lot. Don't worry, just get through them first few days in there and you'll be all right. And that made me feel a little bit better. Um, but yeah, so every day for that first week, we was on the M1 scrubbing the dormitory with your toothbrushes. It's child abuse. Yeah, it is now. State sanctioned. It, it wasn't It wasn't then. Um, and if anyone made any allegations, if any adults made any allegations of their kid being assaulted, it was pushed under the carpet and brushed under the carpet. It wasn't until later on in life when it it got abolished that there were so many cases what come out, like people had committed suicide and the the stories what come out there was unreal, you know. Um, it was a brutal place. So after a week, I got onto the uh, dormitory and I think there was maybe... 30 beds, like 50 on the dormitory, there's 15 each side. So, was all, and like there's in the dormitory, it was like cubicles. It, there wasn't rooms, there was just like a partition wall. There was a bed there, a bed there, a bed there. It was all like next to each other. And one, my mate John Bateman was in there with my best mate. So, I started to like come round and, and not be so frightened, not be so scared, knowing that I've got a few mates there and like thinking that surely I wouldn't get assaulted or beaten up by the officers if one of my mates was there, but that wasn't the case because my mate was just as scared as what I was. And he was a few years older. He was also, everyone was getting brutalized and beaten up in there. We was all just so frightened. So yeah, um, went on to the dormitory. Um, we wasn't, we wasn't allowed to talk when the light, I remember this, we wasn't allowed to talk when the lights went out. So, during the daytime, we was put to work um, and I was working in a greenhouse, which was about half a mile in the prison yard. You, got, you had to run across the big, walk across the big field and then there was like polytunnels, you know, polytunnels. Mm -mm. I start, started working in the greenhouse and and I remember the, uh, the officer, he used to smoke like a pipe, tobacco, he used to smoke a pipe. I remember going into it, he had a little portal cabin because we couldn't smoke in there, it was illegal. I remember we used to go into his portal cabin and we used to uh, get get like the ends of the uh, the pipe. We used to get um, a New Testament Bible, rip the paper for a Rizla and put this like pipe tobacco in there, do you know what I mean? And a wheel like a fisherman's light and we used to have a, we used to have a roll up down there. But I was always one to get caught I was one of them. I just couldn't get away with it. Do you know what I mean? I was always an unlucky one. Always wanted to get caught. Although I had a good run at the end of it. And I was always like, um, it was him. He's the ringleader. So I was looked at 
as like a ringleader. And if anyone got punishment, it was me. Do you know mm. what I mean? So we, we was um, all day. We was down the tunnels um, in his uh, in the nursery. They call it a nursery. Um, made to work all day long, apart from at break times. And other other break time, we had to do um, stand on in a, on the parade outside the prison. We had to go back into uh, our dormitories, get out of our work clothes, put all our all our Sunday best on. And we had to stand on the parade while uh, the governor of the prison come around each one of us in a circle and was looking at our shoes and was looking at our uniforms, looking for dust, looking for airs, looking for a, a crease or anything out of line on your clothing. And you'd get a smack in the mouth for that. And then you'd get told to go back to the dormitory, sort it out, and then come back out again. So that happened a few times to me, you know went back to the dormitory, come back out again, stand into attention. That was another thing we had to do. It was run like a, um, a military uh, base camp. So basically, we got uh, taught, I don't know, was it brainwashed, taught, or I don't know what you call it, but we got taught how to march. We had to march everywhere. It wasn't how to run. We had to march like proper soldiers. Um, so, um, yeah, we got... Uh, was marching everywhere. I remember one day I was at work and my mum, my mum had come up to visit me and the officer radio through to the officer in the tunnel, Barnet's got a visit. Um, I got told to run across the field. It was pouring down the rain. I had my work clothes on. I got to the other side of the field and the officer said, you've got all your work clothes muddy and you've got a visit. You've got someone coming up and he went bang, straight on the side of my nose, straight mm. on the bridge of my nose. Just before a visit as well? Just before a visit. My face, my, my, my face went out like that. My, my nose went all over my face. I was smothered in blood. And do you know, they didn't even have they, the respect to say, go in and get cleaned up. You know, I actually went on the visit. I was smothered in blood. My mum come on the visit. She was crying her eyes out. I was too, I was too scared at that time to tell my mum that as an officer were actually beating me up. I was told, I was told before I went on the visit, to, if my mum asked or if anyone visits me asked, I'd fell over. So, and, it, and obviously if we told anyone and there was any complaints being made, we'd get punished for that too. So if, any, if your parents phoned the prison up and said, right, my son's been brutalised, my son's been hit, we'd actually get, we'd be on the receiving end of that. So, yeah, so that was uh, that was um, send detention centre. Um, I spent three months in there. Also, I remember the regime going to the gym. We was made to go to the gym at six a.m. every single morning. Where to wear gym in the winter too? Where to wear gym shorts, a pair of pair of brown boots with steel toe caps and a vest. And we was, we was all uh, made to do um. You know, like uh, benches at school where you sit on benches, there, there was a few of us laying on the floor and we, we, was made, we was made to like bench press these benches with an officer sitting in the middle of them on the benches and we was made to do these benches every morning and this went on till eight o'clock. Every single morning we was made to go in the gym to do medicine balls and benches and, and it, we used to, put, we used to go, get put on circuits. I very... I mean, I couldn't even do the circuit now. No way could I do it now. The circuit was put on, you know, 
an hour and a half running around and doing these big heavy circuits. So I I didn't really, I didn't knuckle down, to be honest with you. I, I lost all my remission every single day of it. Um, I've got three months and I, I've got, I'm made to do the whole three months. Uh, got out, got out from, from there. Went back, obviously my mum picked me up from the gate. Um, she was driving, I remember a little Mark 1 Escort van all on her own and she was all happy and, and um, when I got home, my real dad was there. John was gone, and my real dad was there. And I thought, what's going on here? I couldn't couldn't really get my head around it. But my real dad was back at home. Um, I did ask my mum what was going on, but you know I was only young, so I didn't really know what was going on. But I remember my, my dad being back. Um, Johnny Barnett, my dad's name, rest in peace. He's dead now too. But I remember him being back. Uh, he wasn't. It, where he'd just come out of the army is very regimental, very strict. Wasn't allowed to leave the table unless we cleared it. Wasn't allowed to talk. It felt like I'd just come out of Ballstall, to be honest with you. It was that type of very strict dad. And I rebelled against it, to be honest with you. I rebelled. Um, because when I used to go out, my mates used to say to me, don't worry about your dad. Do you know what I mean? You're with us now. You can, you can, you can rest now. You're with us. So I took took like my mates from as a second family, because um, they showed me so much love and attention. Obviously, my mum did too, but my dad wasn't a very affectionate person, and it was very like black is black and white is white, very regimental. To say I was scared would be a mistake. I was petrified of him. Um, my dad used to belt me. Whereas John, my stepdad used to smash the house up when he was drunk and attack my mum. My dad used to get his liver belt off if I was naughty and he used to put me over his knee and he used to belt me. So, as I said, I was, I was hanging about with older kids in my estate and at this time, um, we was breaking into uh, factories, warehouses. I remember like breaking into a yogurt factory. <laughs> And we were stuck on, on top of like all these um, crates, and we just it wasn't there for no money. And I was just eating all the yogurts. Do you know what I mean? In this factory, climbed through a little window. We spent hours and hours eating these yog yogurts. <laughs> we sick. No, can't remember. And now we'd done another one, and it was a marzipan factory. So I was sitting on blocks of marzipan, eating blocks of marzipan. It wasn't going there for nicking no money or nothing like that. It was only just in there for nick because we knew it was a marzipan factory and it was a yogurt factory. We kept breaking into this. And so, yeah, we was breaking into a, and I was always, always the first one in from the older boys. They was always putting me through the windows and I never said no. And I thought, I felt like I'd be letting them down. If I said no to them, I felt like I'd be letting them down and, not that they bullied me. They didn't ever bully me or nothing like that, but I suppose they put me on a pedal store and made me feel great. Yeah, just that wanting to belong, isn't it? It's like they were giving you that recognition. So yeah. This is, this is... Yeah, so... So anyway, I think I'm about age 13 now, Sean. Um, obviously, I've got loads more stories running up to that before I was 13, but you'd need a book to tell more stories, to be honest with you. But I remember coming home one day, um, my dad was back and my mum 
had been taken into hospital, which was the Royal Marsden, and she got diagnosed with breast cancer on top of the thrombosis of the lungs and Crohn's disease. Oh, God. And I was 13. Oh, shit. So I remember one day coming home. I don't remember going on, so into hospital, so I, whether I was in prison or... But I remember coming home, and she she wasn't there um, at a detention centre. Angela was at, was at home, and my dad was at home. Um, I remember he, he used to uh, bring home um, old Oban, and he used to say to me, right, pull the tobacco apart. And I used to love the smell of it. You know, like old Oban. I still like the smell of it now. <laughs> and he used to, although he was strict and regimental, he used to say, pull the tobacco apart, pull it apart for me <laughs> in his pouch. I used to like, that's, I think that's what, what led me to st start smoking, to be honest with you. Where like he was showing me tobacco and that, at that age. So anyway, used to visit my mum in the Royal Miles in hospital and seeing my mum in hospital, I can't even explain what it done to me, you know. If I could if I could have died, you know what I mean? I would have died with with worry. Um I was messed up that bad over my mum. I still it still affects me now, you know. I've got I've been diagnosed with PTSD down to the, the lifestyle what I've led to, do you know what I mean? But my mum, any please hurt anyone else, but please don't hurt my mum. She's my world. Then one day I come home from detention centre, my mum was in hospital. I've been taken, I've been taken up there, um, me and my sister by my dad, and I remember coming out of the hospital and crying my eyes out. When's mum gonna come home? I remember um, she had her breast removed. Um, come and one day in the afternoon, I come home from school. I think I was at school, and I, I knocked on the front door. And my dad answered the door, went into the front room, and there was two police officers and three uh, doctors in white coats. I was 13. I thought it was really odd. I, I, well, I, I initially thought, sorry, sorry, Sean, I initially thought it was down to for my mum, because yeah. my mum was in hospital. And before I knew it, my dad said to me, they're for you. And I couldn't understand what was going on. So I said, what do you mean they're for me? I thought that was for mum because mum's got mum's in hospital, and he said no. He said they're, they're for you. You've got to go with them. So Angela, come down, my sister. She was only two years older than me. No, no, no! Please, please, please don't take him. Please don't take him. I was in a fucking bad. Place, I was crying my eyes out. I didn't know where I was going, mm. and um, they put me in the back of a, a taxi. I had a doctor each side of me and a doctor in the passenger seat and a taxi. So there's three doctors. Didn't know where I was going. Before I knew it, I'd entered a, a big, massive uh, mental institution and it was called, um, is it Longgrove? Called Longgrove in Epsom. It was uh, for the mentally insane. <laughs> yeah, so... My dad had me sectioned without oh. telling my mum. Oh, shit. At the age of 13. How cruel is that? It's despicable. Yeah. I remember going into the um, into the hospital, Sean. I remember the doctors putting uh, injections into the, the butts of my cheeks oh. at that age. I was, um, they call it the uh, Liger Actal or the Liquid Kosh. 
what I later found out, the prison staff used it to uh, to um, calm me down when you're having a fight on the landing. They inject you with it, and it turns you into a fraggle, basically. So I remember um, being put on a on a ward, and there was loads of other patients on this ward. But I was the youngest on this ward. I was the only only kid on there. Everyone was like in their forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. I was the only young one on there. Um, sorry, I thought I was at this time because all I could see, all I could see was patients like, walking around me, shuffling their feet, talking to themselves, um, shaving their eyebrows, pulling their hair out, shuffling their feet. Things what I couldn't even say on camera. They was doing things like that sexually to themselves in front of me. Um, and well, I was put, put into a, this dormitory, into a bed. I remember the doctor coming around every day, giving me injections in the morning. And at the daytime, we was put onto, um, into a group. So like it was called a therapy, therapy group or something like that. I remember there was a teacher being there. Um, and there was probably about eight, eight to ten kids um, doing this group things during the daytime. I can't really remember too much about it, Sean, but like we was doing family trees and basically school work, do you know what I mean? And this was all day long. And then over night time, we went back onto the, uh, or the afternoon after, like school hours, we went back to the dormitory and uh, the dormitory had a set of double doors on it. And out the double doors, it was like a bay, bay, bay set of doors. Out the double doors was the ground, beautiful ground, a big long little benches around there. And it was, there was like um, a little town in this little um, lawn. It was like there were shops all around the outside. There was an hairdresser. It was absolutely bonkers. I couldn't get my head around it. And I, I went onto this field. I was sitting on the bench all on my own. There was people opposite me shuffling around, turning around, like walking, talking to themselves, and absolutely bonkers. This went on and on and on. I was traumatised by these elderly people seeing what they was doing. And, and I thought, this is good. This is like going to be me. I'm going to end up like this. Because they was injecting me every day and I actually felt different. I started to feel different. I started to feel calm. Um, I couldn't really get my words out. And it was really affecting me, the medication, what they was giving me. So after about three weeks of being there, it was early hours in the morning and I had pajamas on. And I, I got a, I got sank in here to escape out of this, out of this um, asylum. It was a lunatic asylum. It's since been pulled down, but it went on for many, many years. And I later found out that Ronnie Cray, that was his first mental institution he went to before he went to Broadmoor. He was in Epsom, in Longgrove, the same place as what I was in. So, yeah, so I was in there for a few weeks and um, early hours in the morning, I deceded me, I wanted to escape. I want to go home. So I got, I got out of the, uh, got out of my bed, got, crept along the dormitory and I went into the toilet. I see a little window. Previously, I'd committed like commercial burglaries, warehouses, so I was pretty, pretty good at <laughs> getting in and out of places. So I had a lot of confidence there. So <laughs> it's mad, absolutely crazy, Sean. So I've got out this window I've actually got out of the ground. I don't know where the train station is. All I know is I've got to head towards the train station. I want to go home. So after hours and hours and hours, pits black, walking 
round the Surrey, round the back streets, in a pair of pyjamas, early hours in the morning, 13 years of age, I'd dread to think what people would have thought if they'd have seen me. Um, I got to the train station, was the Epsom train station, got to there, and I remember the trains wasn't running, it was too early because it was early hours in the morning. And um, there was a waiting room in the train station, and I hid underneath the table while the train guards come on and set up. I don't know how I got away with it, but I actually got on the train. Wow. And got to Streatham Common train station, which is my local train station. Got off the uh, train, run over the bridge, escaped out. I escaped out of the train station because I didn't pay. So I've had to run through tunnels. I've had to jump. They've got spikes up at the uh, the wall, like big metal spikes like that, so you can't get in and out. I've got a pair of pyjamas on. Do you know what I mean? I'm climbing through these spikes, a little gap like that. Pulled myself out. I ripped all my pajama bottoms. I'm running down the road now. The pair of pajama bottoms is half. It, <laughs> it was like seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I got home and I could not. It was like Christmas. I could not believe my luck. I, I knocked on the front door. It's like I went through the front door. <laughs> knocked on the front door. My mum answered the door. But just before I. My dad sectioned me. My mum was in hospital. So I, I thought she was in hospital. And I thought it was like my dad there with my sister. So so basically I knocked on the door. My mum answered the door and she just, we fell into each other's arms. Like, it was, I was hysterical. I was really, really upset. And Angela was crying and we was hugging each other. And um, I remember going onto the phone and I remember saying, Mum, Mum, please don't send me back there. Please, please, Mum. She was comforting me, saying, it's okay, son, you're home now. You haven't got to go back. You're home to stay. And I was in a bad way, you know, thinking they're going to come back and get me. But I remember my mum being on the phone and that afternoon, the social worker, which was giving me own tutor, she had come round um, and the police turned up the doctors turn up and there was an agreement um, that I went to St. George's Hospital um, on an appointment to see a psychologist after I escaped. I couldn't believe my luck. I thought they were going to come and take me back. But my mum was fighting the corner. She was holding me. He ain't going back. He's here. He's staying with me now. I'm home from hospital because she didn't have a clue. I was put, even put in there, Sean. She would never dream of doing anything like that to me, nor would any other members of my family do something like that to me. Um, so, yeah, I had to go to the uh, to this um, meeting on the day and I, I remember sitting in front of the psychologist or psychiatrist, an older man. He was looking deep into my eyes and he was like, he had a bit of paper and he gave me a bit of pen and he said to me, uh, right, I want you to draw a family tree. So I said, what do you mean a family tree? And he said, what do you think a family tree is? I said, I don't know what a family tree is. He said, well, draw a tree. He said, and put all your family members where you think they are on the tree. This took me probably about 20 minutes. I was putting my mum, my dad, my sisters, like all my family on this tree, filled the page up. And next, within, within a few, after about an hour probably or something like that, it felt like an hour, um, we went home. And um, I remember the social worker coming around and said, right, he's been diagnosed. He, um, he, he's not, he's not insane at all. He hasn't got no, nothing to do with um being that way. 
I got diagnosed as being um, hyperactive, very hyperactive. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't have to go back there, Sean. Um, Thank God for that. I stayed indoors with my mum. Uh, my dad had left again. My stepdad, John, had moved back in again. All the violence started again. So now, I've been in detention centre. Uh, I forgot to say, look, when I come out of SEND, I was only out for about six months maximum, and I've got another three months detention centre at the same court, Ballon Juvenile Court. And this time I got sent to a, a place called HMP Hasler, which is in Gosport. Um, that's another detention centre. But the second detention centre I went to was not as half as bad as the first one. It was bad and it was run like an army camp. But by the time I'd got there, I'd, I'd had got quite a bit of experience. So uh, I remember going to this detention centre and having the feelings and having the fears of going through all that crap and shit again, what I went to in Send. I remember get, getting put into a single cell yet again, the same regime, same plan, same turnout as Send. Went into a single cell. This time I didn't know anyone in there. So I've gone into the single cell. It's like Send. Uh, you've got to do your first week in on this induction in a single cell to break you in slowly and they put you back onto the dormitory. But a week before you're being released from this detention centre, you've also got to go into the single cell. I don't know what it is, but there was it was a there was a rumor going about look you you wasn't allowed to leave none of your friends any of your items, or you wasn't allowed to talk about going home or anything like that to your friends. So a week before you got released, they made you go in this single cell to be isolated on your own. Whether that was to mess your head up, putting you back into a single in solitary confinement. Like for a week after you've just done three months of torture, it might have been their last like stab. Is the last bit we're going to put you in a single cell for a week? Do you know what I mean? The last bit of punishment. But this time, I got put in a single cell, and I heard like a load of shouting out the window, and I thought that sounds really familiar to me. The shouting. We obviously couldn't see out the windows because they had bars on, um, but you could open them up. They didn't have no. Um, fasteners on the windows that you could open the windows wide up so um so yeah open open the window and i, was, I thought that sounds familiar that voice so it was next door so i banged on the wall and i said mate i said uh you're going home in the morning didn't you he said yeah i said you sound really familiar i said what's your name and he said don't you know who it is joe i said no who is it he said, it's your cousin mark mark Gil martin Rest in peace, Mark. He soon passed away. He died at um, 26 or 28 in a car oh. accident. Um, he was a passenger of a car. And um, the the driver of, of his car had been drinking. Um, and he overtook on the road and went head on to another car. Oh. 60 mile an hour, both sides, both ways. And four oh. people, four people died on the impact. Um, the car went up in flames. It was a fireball. Like this was later on in life. Um, passed away. God bless him. He was my best mate. And as we were kids, as I was growing up, I was. He was one of my friends. He was a few years older than me. He was my best cousin. I was always with him. Um, but yeah, I started chatting to him, and he said, "It's Mark. You, 
fucking hell, he said, it's Mark. He said, I'm going home in the morning. And I thought, oh no, I can't believe my luck. I've just got, I've just been given three months. I've just started this sentence and you're going home in the morning. <laughs> oh, I thought, oh, I can't believe my luck. But he'd said to me, like during that night, we, we sat up all night talking because he was going home in the morning. So we sat up, I wouldn't let him go to bed. <laughs> and I was talking to him and uh, he said, Joe, he said, listen, he said, I've been in there for like eight weeks. He said, I know everyone in here. He said, everyone on this square, because like the cell was on a block and everyone used to talk out the windows. So he introduced me to all his mates. So when I got, when he went home, obviously all his mates, like they knew I was his cousin. Do you know what I mean? It was a lot easier for me. It took a lot of strain off me. Do you know what I mean? Knowing that everyone knew me in there. But I had to live up to the to the reputation what I had at that time, and that was being game, having no fear, and and things like that. So I got in so much trouble in there, um, in Asla. What kind of trouble? I I used to run past officers knocking their caps off. <laughs> uh, I was made to wear uniforms, and like I'd, I'd only wear a t-shirt. I'd I'd swear at them. They used to physically like hit me and, and abuse me, but by the time I'd got to it, I'd hardened up. I didn't really care. Um, but the physical, the physical violence was just as bad as in Send, as in Hasla. Um, so yeah, done three months in Hasla's again. I think I'd, I'd, a, I'd a week left on my remission. I got out of a week's remission, so I didn't lose every day of it. Um, got out, got out, Send. Um, by this time I was joining or joint secondary school which was first down secondary school in Tooting so I had a bigger reputation as you, as you know from for, for all my friends so I've gone into school and every everyone knew me in the school like everyone everyone knew me so I was playing truant of a daytime when we were supposed to be in class I was going out nicking cars joy riding cars um Most of the kids in the school knew me for being trouble for the wrong reasons, not for being the right reasons, for being mad and like game, not caring, not getting on with me work. The teacher used to, when the teacher used to have their back to me and like be writing on the on the blackboard or whiteboard, whatever it's called now, um, I'd be chucking things at them. Do you know what I mean? And I just couldn't get couldn't get my head down. I couldn't get into work. I didn't like being told what to do from an early age. I didn't like authority. Because by the time I got to secondary school, I'd been into detention centre, so I was I was like a primed half of half a villain before I'd even got into secondary school. Um, this went on for probably about a year. The school suffered me, but I was I got suspended so many times in there for playing truant, messing about, aggravating the class. Um, not getting on with my work, just like causing trouble in class and getting other people involved in it and things like that. You know what I mean? Um, one afternoon, I don't know if you remember at school, Sean, we used to have um, school tokens for dinner. Yeah, I used to trade those. Right. With the kids. I used to like run to the shops and get some pear drops and come back and like do my little commerce and, and get some of those tokens as well to get little my plastic food tokens. Right. I spend my dinner money and hustle yeah, and get tokens and then get my dinner with the tokens. That's it, right. So, yeah. 
So anyway, we got we had tokens for dinner, and um, one afternoon I was walking past the uh, the office, the main office, just uh, by the assembly in the main hall, and there was no one inside the office. And I looked in the office, and I see a pile of his tokens like up here. <laughs> It's like giving it's like giving candy to a kid, isn't it? Do you know what I mean, Sean? What we said, it was inevitable. What it's I was treasure, gonna, isn't it? At that age, it was inevitable what I was going to do. So I've gone in. I've run in there. I said to my mate, "Right, keep your eye on the door. I'm going to go in there and nick all these tokens." Nicked all the tokens, and I was walking all around school selling the tokens to these kids. <laughs> I was making money at school selling all these. It's crazy. Made all his money, made made all um, X amount of money, pound not pounds and pounds at a time, which was a lot of money them days, yeah. like pounds. And I had a few days. I didn't go to school for a few days, and we used to go to pictures and cinemas and bowling alley in Streatham, um, the arcades, the amusements, and I was giving all my mates money. And is that we were on Pac Man and Defender and all those? Oh God, yeah, Star Wars, Star Wars, Striker, Space Invaders. Space Invaders. Galaxy. Was there another Galaxy. One? Galaxy. Frogger. Frog. That, that was absolutely nuts. Yeah, that was, our, that was my era. So, yeah, Pac-Man and I Galaxy. I obsessed so with them at that age. God, so, I remember yeah. the little ball on Galaxy. Yeah. I used to press the button and spray them all. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> awesome. Were you rigging the machines as well to get free credits? No, 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 not at the time. Because um, I was nicking, I was getting money then, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was getting money. But what 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 I used to do is um I used to go into the, the arcades, our local arcades, kick the machines and uh, get all the money out of the bottoms of the trays. And <laughs> I was always get, always doing things like that. Oh, we'd tell the owner that the the one arm bandit hadn't paid out. We got the jackpot and it's not paid out. Yeah. And I'd ask them for three quid or five quid and they give it us. Crazy, yeah. Yeah. I also remember as a kid, um, jumping over the back of off licenses, nicking WH. Are white lemonade bottles because if you took them back in, back. you were yeah, getting yeah, paid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to <laughs> jump over the back of the off licenses, <laughs> nick a crate of these uh, these lemonade bottles, and take them back into the same shop. <laughs> same shop. Same shop. Me. It was an Irish bloke called Mick, and he used to look at me with like evil eyes, it, as if to say these bottles look familiar. Do you know what I mean? Just out of his back garden. Well, I used to sit there shaking, and I used to look at him like. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I remember things like that. Do you know what I mean? It was really mm. good day, funny, funny times. Lemonade bottles. Yeah. I don't think I make them now. Yeah. Them lemonade bottles. Dandelion and bird dark and all that. God, yeah. So, so after being in secondary school for probably around a year and being suspended numerous times, um, John was at home with my mum and Angela. So. It become normal to me. The violence what I was seeing from my stepdad become a second nature to me. It was, it was normal to me. Unfortunately, it's just how it was. It became a normal, normal way of life to me. So um, the teachers, I, I don't blame them really now, looking at it now, but they, they just couldn't put up with me because I was so disrupting. Um, I disrupt the whole class, do you know what I mean? And and the teachers, soon it soon became apparent that... Um, they couldn't handle me in their school. So I got sent to um, a thing called an off-site centre, which was like for naughty kids. Um, you went there during the daytime, but you didn't, not like a secondary school where you had to wear civ like a uniform, blazers and 
uh, trousers and your shoes. You could go in your own clothes. Um, and all the other kids in there was naughty. So it felt so good to go there. Um, and I knew a few of the boys there from my old area. So again, uh, I went into there really with open arms. The other kids, hello, Joe, how you doing? And sweet, you're with us now. I remember going there the first day. Listen to this, Sean. I remember going there the first day and my uncle, um, I can mention his, his Again, rest in peace, George. He only just passed away a few months ago. Um, George Gilmartin. Uh, that's just another one to get me around. But, um, yeah, Big George was, a, um, I always looked up to him. He, was, he had his own company. He was a roofer. And he had a roofing firm called Alloway and Martin. So this school that I got sent to was only a few miles away from where I lived. And I remember going there one day and my uncle was on the roof at the top. He was a roofer. He was doing the roof. The school was called Hydeburn and it was in Ballam. So I looked up. I looked up to my uncle and I said, hello, George. And he tried not to talk to me, you know, because he's up on the roof and I'm down the bottom in the playground talking to him while he's up on the roof. And with that, I don't know what made me do it. I've got, I'm climbing up a drain pipe. I'm on the top of the roof, like 60 foot, like a pitch roof like that. You know, I'm running across all these roofs. I'm only 13, 14. I'm skinny. <laughs> all the police got cold. You know, they was fighting. I was going to, I'd, I'd have been, if I'd have fell off the roof, I'd have killed myself without a foul. Is that I? I was jumping across the roof like I was Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> Literally like Spider-Man. Um, got punished for that, got suspended for that. But with this school here, where they were so used to like, the bad behaviour, we didn't get punished as bad. Do you know what I mean? They didn't try and give us detention. They didn't try and give us the lines, what we had to do at school and things like that. Basically, I was just networking and just building new links and meeting older people and meeting people gamer than me. And So, yeah, um, I lasted in, in Hydeburn for probably another six months. Uh they suspelled me, and that was from a naughty school. I got suspelled from a naughty school. Got sent to another one. Um, that went on again. I was banging trouble in there again and playing up and not getting on with my work. And in the end, they just give up on me. The, the uh, authorities completely and utterly give up on me. They couldn't manage me. They couldn't cope with me. Um, they give up on me. So we had an agreement. Like, um, I had home tutor, and I stayed at home. So I had a home tutor and she used to come around the house a few times a week, doing um, giving me schoolwork, doing lessons with her. Um, but she was more like a friend. By now I was 13. I've never done my work with her. I didn't learn nothing. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't even read and write. She didn't even learn me how to read and write, to be honest with you. Um, I remember going going to her house during the daytime one day and she just had a little baby. And like, she used to let me, instead of getting all my schoolwork, giving me work, I was babysitting her kid. Do you know <laughs> <laughs> she used to take me out shopping and like I was her son <sighs> so I didn't learn I didn't learn much from there um, I was getting I was still getting arrested for petty crime at this time it, the crime had, had moved up a notch and I was now doing like house burglaries running through the window stuck as you're small yeah 
yeah, the adults were putting me through the windows. And where I was skinny, I was putting my hand through the letter boxes, opening the front doors up. Um, I was climbing up the drain pipes. I was like a cat burglar. I was so quick and so fast in and out of there. It was unbelievable. Like all, that, all, all, that was, all the boys we used to say to me was get in there, open the front door up, and we'd do the rest. I used to get in there, open the front door up, and that was it. They'd be in there ransacking the house. Um, this was age 15. So I got arrested a few more. I got arrested a few more times and got arrested for burglary. So it wasn't commercial burglary. That no, was a house burglary. And I got sentenced to um, three years detained, which is when you get a detained sentence when you used to do young offenders. So basically, uh, if you get a detained sentence, that I, I've stopped doing it now. But if you get a detained sentence, um, you've got to do every day that detained sentence. So um, for two or three burglaries, I went to court and got three years young offenders. And I got sent into Feltham. That was the young offenders. I remember vividly, I was 15. Um, got put onto a, a wing called Eagle Unit. I knew one or two boys from my area on there. Um, that felt like an adult prison, to be honest with you. There was no, it was nothing like a ball stall, nothing like what I'd been through. It was like an holiday camp. And it became fun for me. It wasn't a deterrent. It become normal. So, um, you knew a lot of people in there. Yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of fights in there. Um, we used to put PP9 batteries in socks, and we used to wait for people to go in the shower. If you had any beef with anyone, you'd wait for them to go in the shower. You'd go from behind them and smash them over the back of the other PP9 battery and leave them in a pool of blood on the floor. And if you didn't do that, and you was, you was looked at as a weak person, and you would get bullied. So you, it was fight or flight. You had to. Um, there was a daddy of the wing. He he actually run the wing. So we was all like, all like his command, command or whatever you call it. He was at the top of the chain. But the daddy of my wing was one of my best mates from my area. <laughs> and he was like 17 and I was 15. So introducing to all new mates again, new people, older people, getting new links. Um. I'd done every day of the three years. Had numerous fights in there. You know, I wasn't, I ain't saying I'm, I'm some big hard man because I'm far from hard, you know what I mean? I was getting beaten up as much as I was beating people up. Um, at that age, but I was skinny, I was wiry and I was quick. So people were picking on you because you look small then? Yeah, a little bit. I'd say a little bit of that. Um, a little bit of bullying because I looked weak. So I always had that in my head. I've got to damage you. Can you remember any of those actual stories of what happened or is that too too long ago? Yeah, I remember I remember a bully on our on our wing and um he was taxing it was called taxing then. So he was taxing people um when they got their canteen. What happened was it was when you got your canteen, your officer would come around and give you it during the night and then in the morning, obviously you just got all your bits and and this boy, like, he'd put a strong arm on quite a few of the boys on the wing. He'd bullied them and he was taking all their canteen. And um, one of my mates who was 17, 
he wasn't getting taxed because he was the daddy of the wing. And he actually said to me, he said, look, Joe, he said, he hasn't come up, he hasn't bullied you yet because he knows that you're my friend. He said, but I'm going home in a few weeks' time. He said, and you're going to be left on your own. He said, so, and this bully did try it with me. And I basically told him to piss off. I was a little bit frightened because he was bigger than me and a few years older. But uh, he didn't attack me. I didn't get beat up or nothing like that at the time. He was taking all the canteen, not just some of it. He was taking all the canteen. Yeah, was, yeah bully, completely out of bully, yeah. <sighs> um, you know, there, there was people committing suicide in there, not down to canteen, but down to like being in prison and being away from their family. and Still slashing themselves or hanging some, themselves? Or? Yeah, there was someone, there was a kid that hung himself in there. I remember he died in there. Um, there was numerous slashings in there. The suicide rate was... Over the, over the hills, so I Sean. And this was only a young offender's jail. So I remember the build-up. I remember the build-up to this bully. Um, I remember going to bed at night, like thinking about it, thinking, you know, I've got to do, I've got to do him, I've got to do him, because otherwise I'm going to be looked at weak, and he's going to do me. This went on for a few nights, and then one one day during the association, I see him sitting down at the table, and he was he was laughing and joking to a couple of his mates. He was a bit older. And he's on the so he's on the association room. He goes back to me, uh, and I didn't know what way. I, I didn't really care what way he, he, I'd done him, as long as I'd done him. So we had, I had a Roberts Rambler radio. Don't you remember the Roberts Rambler? The Queen stamp on top of him with a, a PP9 battery, like a big square battery. I remember the batteries. Yeah, batteries. Yeah, big ones. So I took that. Um, I built myself up for it this, this afternoon, and I told myself, right, I'm going to do him. So after after a few minutes, I put this battery in his sock, I tied the end off, and I see him sitting out there. I've crept, I've crept up to him, and I've gone, bang. I've hit him straight on top of the end. I split his head and off like that. He's gone over like that. I must have knocked him unconscious or, like, or something like that because he, he didn't see me, and he didn't even know it was me, to be honest with you. It wasn't until like a few boys had told him, you know that was Joey Barnett that done that, didn't you? And that's the other bloke's mate, the daddy of the wing. That's his mate. So I didn't become the daddy of the wing because they, I wasn't hard. And I couldn't really have a good fight with my hands because I was small, but I didn't have no fear. Because I've seen violence already. I, I knew that I had to pick, because I was small, that I had to compensate for being small. So I was a dangerous man because I had to pick things up and hit people, hit, hit people, hit with, hit people with things, you know. Um I didn't ever slash anyone or any or anything like too naughty like that. But yeah, the numerous fights. Um, another time, a bed leg. We had metal beds, single frames. Another time, I had a fight with a, a, a geezer running up to it again, and I, he done me on this fight with a straightener because I wasn't the best of fighters. I went back and I done him. I done him straight on the bridges of the nose. He was playing pole, and he had his head down like that, playing pole, and I had a big black big black eye and split lip and that way. He whacked me. And why did you guys scrap? I can't really remember. Um, oh, that was it. Right. He was selling um, cannabis at the time. It was a rocky slate or hash, red leb. It was all that. Um, it was coming in on the visits, believe it or not. Um, and I bought an half ounce deal of, of uh, wacky backy off him and I didn't pay him on time. Um, so, where he was a drug dealer, 
he thought if I let him get away with it and I let, let him take a piss out of me, everyone's going to do it. So basically, he did give me an hiding, you know. Um, I was in the shower. I didn't, that was it. He gave me an hiding. I had a black eye, my nose, my lip. A few days went by and I, I, I couldn't, like, couldn't get over it, you know what I mean, um, being beaten up. Because really, this was the first time, really, that I'd really been beaten up by another boy. I'd been beaten up by adults. Like off, off screws in de in detention centres, and I've been punched and slapped. I'd never really been beaten up by another kid, so I didn't really have um fear factor. But I know that when I tried to fight him back, I couldn't fight him back. He had the better of me, so I knew from the start I wasn't the best fighters. Do you know what I mean? But I was game at the end of the day, um, and I was staunch on. I was known as being staunch, not a grass. Or anything like that. So people liked me, you know. <laughs> they liked being around me. Um, so yeah, he was playing pool one afternoon. I thought, I'm going to get you back. I still had, still had all marks on my eyes. And um, PP9 battery. Uh, as he was taking the shot like that, I've come behind him. I've done it. He must have had a big nose. I've come down his head, but he's hitting him on the bridge of the nose down there. Danny's really done him up bad. Split his nose open. Um, the officers got called in. I remember the panic alarms going off. I got dragged to the segregation unit. Um, I remember, remember being down in the segregation unit and for about a week, um, they give me solitary confinement without earnings and 23 hour lockup down there, basically. So, uh, yeah, I got punished, I got punished for it, but as luck had it, when I come back to the wing, he was gone. I was going to ask that what happened next with him. Yeah. He was gone. He'd been, he wasn't gone out of the prison. He'd been put onto another wing um, because the officers got involved with it at this time. It was a blessing in disguise. I'm glad they did because I know for a fact he'd give me a right hiding. Do you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that was, that was really, the, that was really the first time when I was violent to other people when I knew that I had the ability to do to do it and to cause people harm, not with my hands, with a weapon. Um, I had numerous fights on that sentence, but you know, as kids, uh, you you do on any young offenders. You've you've always got a daddy in these young offenders. It's gladiator school, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of bullying going on. Um, they even go as far as like saying to you, right, make sure on your next visit you get cannabis brought in on the visit. Do you know what I mean? These people, when they're getting bullied for that, like asking their parents to bring them in cannabis, do you know what I mean? And then giving it to these bullies. Mm. It was, there was a lot of that going on, a lot of bullying going on. Um, I come, I come a couple a few times, you know. In what ways? Getting, getting slapped and getting beaten up. So I think I didn't give as good as I got because I got a few hidings. Um, but yeah, I got, I got out of that sentence after doing three years. Um, obviously before I got the three years I'd met a girl um, on the fairground and I've jumped forward a little bit too far sorry Sean I do get a little bit confused sometimes I'm sorry but previously I think I was around 14 or 15 I think I'm about on, I'm still on the age thing yeah yeah 14, 15 yeah, yeah so um, the fairground come to be a, my local common and I remember getting a job on the fair on the waltzer and I used to love it I was I was only 15 and the older boys were like 17, 18 
and like the owner of the, of the ride taught me how to uh, ride the platforms and push the cars around the speed runs and I got really, really good at it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. They didn't pay us no money, nothing at all. Didn't even feed us. They just making us work on the fairgrounds. You know I mean, I, I thought it was fun. And uh, after a few weeks, uh, I met a girl. Um, she became my girlfriend. I, I did. I wasn't really uh, into the settling down or having a girlfriend or boyfriend material. I wasn't that type. Do you know what I mean? Um, I didn't want to settle down. I was having too much fun. And I was on the fair. I was. I weren't a bad looking kid. I was a good looking kid at that time. And I was a cocky, cocky little fucker. So I had the gift of the gab. Do you know what I mean? I was going for them like the smarties, to be honest, with different girls. Do you know what I mean? And, and this one girl took a liking to me. And I remember going home one day, like, knocking on my front door, walking in my house, and my mum and my sister was in there. And like, this girl was in my house. Mm. Like, I said, what's she doing in here, mum? Do you know what I mean? Pregnant. No, no, she wasn't, no. And my mum said, uh, oh, she's come to see you, like, you're a boyfriend. And so this went on and on and on. And we kept seeing each other, and she was coming back. She was staying around. Um... At this time, my stepdad, John, was at home. So my dad had long gone by then. He'd left us um, up camp um, and moved to Bristol. Well, actually, Bath, Somerset way, ran that way. So I've got family up that way, um, cousins all ran that way. And um, there was a breakdown of communication between our dad and, and us lot. He'd just done a moonlight flip. And that was it. Um, we didn't see him again. Um, got told by my uncles, which was these brothers and my cousins, what he sang about when I was a kid, that he had a, he'd had a heart attack and a stroke later on in life once he'd moved. And um, yeah, he had a, a major heart attack and died. He died when I was 15. So... I didn't get to see him as an adult. Mm. I didn't get to make amends with him as an adult. Um, it's pretty sad now, you know, thinking about it now. My, my dad never used to beat me up or hit me, but obviously he used to give me the belt and that, so I see him as a as a bit of a threat to me. But yeah, he had a, he had a heart attack late, later on in life and died. Um, and uh, his brothers and his... His sister got in touch with my family and um, expected my family to pay for his funeral. And considering they'd left us and didn't want nothing to do with us for like the good part of 10 years or maybe we didn't really pay for it and didn't want nothing to do with him because he left us, do you know? Um, he, he, left, he, left, he left me with a very violent man they want nothing to do with us. I don't blame my dad for for the way I turned out later on in life, Sean. But now I know that when he was taking the belt and hitting me, he was trying to like punish not punish me, he was trying to tame me. And he was trying to do that for the right reasons. But it was physically it was it was physically abuse. Like I become scared of him. Um one afternoon before he left. 
my mum was in hospital going back to it for instance um he was hoovering at the top of the stairs and my, me and i was talking to my sister at the bottom of the stairs this is how evil he was and he threw this he threw the hoover from the top of the stairs down to the bottom he hit my sister, sister straight in the hip <sighs> done a bit broke a rip or a leg or something like that mm. that's the type of man he was he was very regimental very strict so in a way i'm glad he left us when we were kids do you know what i mean so yeah, um, this girl, she was in my mum's house every day. I've le left the fair. I was probably sixteen, something like that. Um, she got pregnant at sixteen. At sixteen, my mum and my stepdad had had enough of London, so I was only sixteen. Um, I forgot to mention, I, I really am sorry for this, but this is a really important part. I've got to mention this. Because I had such a good childhood, not good. I mean, I mean, I had everything I wanted, as in fashion, clothes, money, I had the love, I had all that attention. Um, my mum and my step, stepdad bought a caravan um, um, on a holiday park in a place called Bognor Regis, Riverside. So every other weekend, we was down a caravan um, as we were kids. Like 14, 15. I'd been in prison by then a few times, but I was still up and down a caravan. And um, I used to come off the site when I was on the caravan. Um, I used to see little country houses around the outskirts, all on their own. I'd be burgling the houses. One afternoon, 15 years of age, I burgled an house and I found a shotgun. I didn't even know what, what it was. I just knew it was a gun. This was the first time I ever handled a firearm. I was 15. It was um, an old 410 um, up and over shotgun. Sorry. So, yeah, um, running all across all these fields, I broke into this house, nicked all the jewellery. As we was coming out into the outer house, I've seen a case on the wall, ripped the case off. There's big boxes, a box of ammunition, shotgun. I just thought it was an air rifle at the time. I took this air, took this air rifle, it was a shotgun, but I took this gun. And I'm running all through these fields. I was only 15. It's about four miles away from like a caravan. Do you know what I mean? Don't know how I've done it. I got home, got to my caravan. My stepdad was there. My mum was there. Where have you been? I said, I've got this. I've got this for you. I've got this. <laughs> my mum couldn't believe it. <laughs> my mum couldn't believe it, Sean. Absolutely bonkers. <sighs> my dad quickly took it off me. My stepdad took it off me. Got rid of it. Someone on the site bought it. One of his mates bought it. <laughs> so, that, you know, that was that on the site. And um, it was a clubhouse on the site, you know, like a, a nightclub. Um, we used to go in, it was called a rainbow room. We used to go in the rainbow room and I used to cause fights in there. I'd be at the bar drinking where I shouldn't have been at the bar. I used to, I used to run across all the tables. Like the people, like I got barred out of the club. Don't ever come in here again jumping across all the tables. There was a shopping centre in this like holiday resort caravan park. I got barred out there. I was nicking all their stuff out of there. There was a laundryette in there where people were done all their clothes. I've broken all the machines, nicked all the money out of the laundryette. Um, the owner of the site, his name was Ken, he'd got a wind of me like breaking into all these places and causing like murders on the site. And he said to my mum and my stepdad, he said, I don't want you on the site no more. He said, you've, we're kicking you off the site. 
So we got kicked off the site. Um, the caravan was put out in a dual carriageway. It was like a big, massive, 30 foot long caravan. I remember. Yeah, so that happened. And um, anyway, so yeah, so going back to um, the girl, I met the girl and she fell pregnant. Well, at that time, my mum and my stepdad was thinking about selling the house, um, selling like the recession was in at that time. My dad was, my stepdad was very hard worker. He was always at work. He was a painter and decorator. He had a big, massive contract with Heinz, the factory, and he was never out of work. He was always at work. I've got to give him his due, but he was violent, so it's irrelevant. Um, he used to spend his money on alcohol and come back and abuse us. Do you know what I mean? So, so yeah, um, I was talking about, I was talking about up in camp and moving to um, Little Hampton, um, West Sussex, which was just a few miles away from the caravan park where he was. And the girl that I was with fell pregnant. My mum and dad, stepdad moved. And I didn't have, we didn't have no alternative but to go into a bed and breakfast. So we went to the council. We got asked in emergency accommodation, got put in a bed and breakfast. Um, I was only young. I was at this time 17, maybe 18. She had just turned 16 when she just had her first child. Oh. Um, so we was only young ourselves. I wasn't ready to settle down, Sean. You know, I've been through so much. It was just, it was inevitable we were going to split up. Um, so we was putting uh, all different bed and breakfasts all around London. North London, East London. I remember being in these bed and breakfasts and there was cockroaches up the walls. It was absolutely filthy places. We had to get out there first thing in the morning and we was in this stupid little room like a big as a toilet, six by six. She fell pregnant again whilst we was in bed and breakfast. Um, the second child, that was our son. No, sorry. Yeah, that, yeah, I'm right. Yeah, that was our son. So I had my daughter, I had my son, uh, 17, 18. This was probably in the early eight, uh, 88, 89, something like that, Sean. And the rave scene come in. Mm -hmm. The ecstasy scene come in. All the, the field raves, the warehouse raves, the barn dances. I just had two kids. I was, I was out every weekend for days on end going to raves. We had shell suits on. We used to get, for the weekend, it was absolutely fucking pucker days. Do you know what I mean? We used to have a little half of an ecstasy called a Cali on MDMA and we was flying off our nuts all weekend. Do you know what I mean? Not white doves. Oh God, yeah. Window panes, white doves. California sunshine. That was the best of Cali's, mate. <laughs> uh, Trips will come at trip acid trips had come trips, out at yeah. 88. Yeah. I was 15, 16 when it, when the, the rave scene had started, Sean. I took to that like I loved it. What DJs did you like back then? What sort sorry? DJs. At, actually it was DJ uh, there was Jumping Jack Frost, yeah. Groove Rider. Groove Rider and Fabio. Fabio. I used to yeah. go to school with Fabio. He's at first and second. Really? Yeah, he was wow. like, um Camden Pally was about uh, there was raves all around London. Sasha? Seven, yeah. Carl Cox? Stush. Um, 
Cole Cox, yeah, there's yeah. just God, yeah. Sash and Carl Cox were probably the most headliners I saw. Jumping Jack Foss and Groove Rider. Yeah, yeah. Fabio and Groove Rider. Yeah. They were everywhere as well. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I loved I loved the techno. I loved the music. It was all just acid house, wasn't it? All the different Fucking. types. From coming out of Ballstall and going into coming out of the lifestyle what I had, mm. coming into all this, um, I went into it with my cousin. His name is David. Um, and he was a two years older than me. Um, he lived um, in Peckham at the time, down the Old Kent Road. And that's where the raves, it was at its height down the Old Kent Road. God, you had the uh, arches at Vauxhall, uh, Strawberry Sundays, you had lab so many different raves. So, yeah. Um, Adamski, Guru Josh. Killer, yeah. God. Energy. So, devotion. It was um, KLF. KLF, yeah, yeah, yeah. God, there was so much. I forgot to say, Sean. So, anyway, one of my friends, what I knew in school, his dad owned a, um, a, a hire shop, which used to hire out DJing equipment, all right? This was a bit later on. I'll talk to the story in a bit. So basically, I hired untold stuff off him, laser lights, smoke machines, technique 12, 10 decks, and I had everything. I hired it off him, <laughs> and I'd done a moonlight flip with a lot. It disappeared when I was a kid. And I, I was working all around the, like nightclubs in London. I was, I was DJing. So you were spinning? Yeah, I was on 12, 10 decks. I was, doing, I was getting a bit of a name for Did myself. Did you have some skills? I, was, I, I actually held a few of my own raves. Like... <laughs> Me and, me and a few of the boys off Tooting Junction, um, mm. bloke called Roy and Sid and Jit, still about now. Um, yeah, I opened a few um, Boy Scouts halls. Just said to him, it was just like an 18th birthday party and I was doing weekenders in there. So the, like, the ecstasy come out and um, the acid come out. I was around 17, 18 at this time. I was going in the, um, in the nightclubs and the pubs down the old Kent Road. There was no violence or nothing like that. Everyone was just loved Smiling, up. Smiling, dancing, massaging. It oh. was just, it was all love, wasn't it? There the was days, no problems. Things back then days, man. I tell yeah. you. So I remember doing the first pill what I'd done, Sean. I, I'll never forget it. First one is always the... <laughs> the first one I'd done, I was in a, a, a pub down the old Kent Road called the Dun Cow. Boy George... And Nigel Ben was DJing it. And he was a DJ at Ministry of Sound at the time and all. And uh, me, me cousin, obviously, he was a few years older than me. So he'd been in that in that scene for, for a few years. Anyway, one of my friends gave me an E. Right? So I'm, I'm on this dance floor. It's absolutely packed, you know. You steam, there's sweat up the walls. Do you remember the atmosphere in the yeah, show? It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, and all that. Fucking yeah. unreal. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm rocking like this because I was rocking. So I'm, I'm rocking at the music. The, the lights was on me. The speakers was on me. I felt great. I was on top of the world. And I said to me, mate, he said, have a, have a pill. I'd never done one. So I said, yeah, go on, mate. Go on, mate. He said, do half at a time. Do half. Do your, it's, it's your first one. Do half. I said, no, nah, give me a pill. Give me another one. I've done this pill. Sean, I'll tell you what, mate. 
I'm still standing on the spot rocking, dancing. Did your knees go first? Yeah. And about half hour later, 20 minutes later, my mates are looking over at me and they said, are you, are you on it? Are you on it? And I'm shouting over to them. I'm like, off me nut, peeling off me nut. I said, no, I can't feel nothing. I can't feel nothing. And they said, look at you. I couldn't believe it. Anyway. <laughs> but the music starts to sound different, doesn't it? When, when you hit yeah, it. The atmosphere. It's like just, it goes into your brain or yeah, something. Yeah, fucking atmosphere was unbelievable. Yeah. It was another, on another level. Shot, yeah. So... I was pulling off and I was loving it. Do you know what I mean? Everybody's all going up to each other, kissing each other, cuddling each mm -hmm. other. Not just girls, boys and all. Who's going in the toilet? Everyone's just hugging, yeah. Who's going in the toilet? It's like, like drinking people water. your life story. Yeah, drinking yeah, water. Yeah. Put, what you want, mate? Oh, pill, pill. How many you want? All that was going on. I remember on the middle, being on the middle of the dance floor and um, I remember seeing this bloke and he had like a Olsen pills bottle and he's got it above his head like that. And he's walking out and I'm on the dance floor and he's walking towards me. And I've said to him, mate, he's going to do me. I've got paranoid. I said, he's coming to do me. He's coming to do me. And they was all laughing because I thought, when I was peeled up and I'd seen so much violence, I thought he's coming to do me over the head with his pills bottle. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I said to me, mate, I said, no, no, no. He said, no, Joe, no. He said, he ain't, don't be stupid. He said, he's going home. He's going out. He's going out the door. It went on, it just mm. right, and then we come out of there. Um, I remember one day, Sean. I've got to tell you this story before I forget. This is a really good story. Uh, it was like a bloke, all like in the top garms, he had all gold round him, chops. He's a few years older than me, a few years older than us all in this rave. And it had finished, it was the end of the night, it's probably about four o'clock in the morning. And he was outside and he was giving out flyers at the front, yeah. So I said to me, my cousin Dave and all the rest of the boss, come on, we'll have some of that. It was in, um, it was up the M25 somewhere. We all had to meet in a service station up there. Right. I was driving by then. I, I'm, I'm not pissed because I'm peeled up. I was the same, just driving everywhere on XC. I was drinking water. Meanwhile, man. I, no, no, it was you, Sean? Yeah, yeah, and just drinking water and just high on XC, driving eye, around, listening I, to the tunes. My eyes were like that on the steam, I was completely off my face. If I would have got pulled up by the police, uh, that's another story. I, I got good at driving on XC. Yeah, yeah. You, you become, for some reason, you become aware. Yeah. I think you become more aware of what's on it because you've got to, because you know you're on appeal. Yeah. But I remember this one time, he come out, it's about four o'clock in the morning, and uh, this guy was giving out a flyers, and it was £10 a ticket, his flyers, and we all paid him. Looking at it now, he must have got heck, thousands of pounds because there was there was hundreds of us, like, all like up the M25. We were going towards, um, coming off, no, we weren't the M25, sorry, it was up the A3, going, coming out of Cobham, going up that way. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, he was in a red Porsche, and I was in an old uh, SDI Rover, like the police used to have, a 3.5 V8 manual. Shit off shovel. Like this, I was good on a motor and all. I was untouchable in a motorbike, I was fucking sick. And um, we all went into the service station on, uh, up the M25, and he said, what, he said, he said, it's only a few miles up the road. He said, follow us, he said, we're nearly there. He said, just stop here and have a break, all of us. And we started following him, and I looked at Ed, and, and all, of, all of a sudden, his back lights were becoming like in the, the distance. He was putting his toe down, Sean. 
And I thought, we don't know where it is. There's no way in the world am I going to catch him. He's in a Porsche. And I just kept on and on and on. We thought we were going to find him. He, he lost us and scammed us for all our money. Oh. It was, he made all these flyers up. Oh. He knew exactly what he was doing. So like, it's a shame. Yeah, but other times, you know. I've other been, times, it was the time of our lives, wasn't it? Oh, fucking hell, yeah. I remember um, Sunrise. There's a rave called Sunrise. It was in a barn. I can't remember where the barn was. And I remember it was like three days, Sean. I remember, oh, it was fucking, the members were so good. I remember like someone opened the doors up of his barn at five o'clock in the morning and Sunrise was coming through. Yeah. I've, the memories I have of it and they called this they called the dance Sunrise that's why they opened the doors up M things like that stay with smoke you machine and everything the, the, the laser lights and the strobe did you ever get up north or was it all down south no you should travel everywhere Sean all round the country really yeah did you do any raving in Manchester anywhere, anywhere that far I only but, came to down south once and I ended up in the fridge in Brixton yeah, the fridge, yeah. Uh, there was um, a rave opposite it called uh, the Crip St. Matthews below a church too, the fridge, yeah. Um, where did I go up uh, north? I remember Birmingham on a field in Birmingham. Birmingham Rag Market was a big one. There was a rave. I can't really remember too much about it, but it was a massive rave. But, so what we used to do, we used to like, every weekend we'd go to like the nightclubs and then if there wasn't no raves on, we used to put like a pirate radio station on and that's how we used to get our like our links to where the raves are and that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, in Manchester they had the eight oh eight State Show was on the radio mm. and Radio Piccadilly Stu Allen. Yeah, uh, like Kiss FM wasn't legalised then, so we used to listen to them and they used to give out all like the different places and different dances, mm -hmm. different raves, um, all over the place. I used to go, but and the cops couldn't do anything because on the motorway, yes. as far as you can see in Convoy. front of you, as far as you can see behind you. Every single car, every lane was ravers. Convoy. The cops couldn't fuck with that. I don't know whether, it, whether like they they knew that we wasn't there for trouble. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because they knew we was just like, like raving. I remember going to like one or two of them a, a few times, and not all the police were there turned up. Yeah, they did start to clock on, and didn't they, they started clocking on. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But then like warehouses, like the, that's when I first met Dave Courtney. Yeah. Um, was, was in Bermondsey. Was he throwing for events then? Yeah. Security. Yeah, that was it, yeah. And so, um, so what was your encounter with Dave? Dave's a friend of James, isn't he? Yeah, I've known Dave a long time. Yeah. I've known him way back, way back with him. Uh, as I said, I met him when I was younger. He was a few years older than me. Yeah. He was... Uh, he you're, was you're a, sorry, Sean, yeah. I keep forgetting. I've sorry. got a brain like a fucking sieve. <laughs> Is it age or what? Um <laughs> Yeah, I remember him old, like holding a few raves doing that. He was selling fucking um, bottles of water. I remember yeah. them days. It was tap water. Yeah. I remember buying it and the tops was off. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but buying the bo bottles of water, like a pound each, and the tops was off. We, we, we just didn't drink alcohol at that time. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you were. It was to rehydrate, wasn't it? Getting the water and throwing yeah. it over you. Yeah. Literally yeah. drowning yeah. yourself in yeah. the cold water to cool yourself down. Our, our, our temperatures were that high. Yeah, all the dancing. Yeah, but I'm talking like two, three days, non-stop dancing. Non-stop, yeah, yeah. Just part of my life. through your clothes. You're, all your clothes are just soaked through and you're driving yeah. around. We should wear shell suits. Yeah, yeah, Ka kappa and stuff. Kappa, yeah, naff-naff. Sergio Toshini. I'm feeler. <laughs> Fucking hell. So, yeah, that, you know, I eat all that. And um, 
at this time, I was in bed and breakfasts going back on the story. Mm. I was in bed and breakfasts. We had two kids at this time. Um, my mum and my stepdad had up camp and they moved to uh, Little Hampton, as I said, West Sussex. They actually bought a bed and breakfast on the seafront and was doing bed and breakfast. That was always my mum's dream before she passed away. It's nice, don't they? Yeah, she just wanted a peaceful life. Um, but when I, because I was only 16 years of age, I didn't want to leave London. That's all my mates and of course, all, yeah, the buzz, isn't it? I just didn't want to leave. I did at first. I moved it, I moved to Little Hampton with my parents. Um, and the girl I was with, we she moved with me. We was in a bed and breakfast, just about to get rehoused around there with two kids, John. Do you know what I mean? But I, I only stayed there for probably a year maximum and something was pulling me back to London. Something was, I wasn't ready, wasn't ready to settle down um, and call it a day with all my mates. I was, I was at the, at the height of me fucking, I was enjoying my life. The rave scene was in and. The wolves are always howling, aren't they? Come back to the party scene. Yeah. yeah. Just, it was such a good time in my life. You know, I've got to admit that was the best days of my life, the rave mm. scene. Mm. So, uh, where was we now? So there was quite a lot of strain on our relationship, this girl, because obviously we had two kids. We was in a bed and breakfast and we was pushed from political posts by the authorities. We was in like each one at a time for two weeks at a time, moving to different ones, moving to different ones. It was so unsettling. It was unreal. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I split up. We split up. So it was inevitable we were going to split up. But what happened was, Sean, was, um, she was from um, Balham, southwest London, which is just around the corner from where I was from. So her family knew my family. We all knew each other. And her family didn't really like the fact that she was with me, to be honest with you. Her brother was a DJ, five years older than me at the time. He was doing raves and all. Um, they just didn't want me to be with her. So there was a bit of a strain on it. We were kids ourselves, do you know what I mean? We was having kids, we were kids ourselves. We tried, do you know what I mean? Um, she, uh, she, uh, her parents moved to Cambridge from London when, I, when we was uh, 16, 17, in these bed and breakfasts. <clears throat> Just after we split up, her parents moved. So she moved with her parents to Cambridge. Um, so we, we'd split up for probably a good few years. And while we'd split up, I was, um, I started to uh, rent different bed sets and started to move in with both my sisters. My mum and my dad, my stepdad had moved away. So I just wanted to be in London at the time. And um, I've, I've I went into a, a bed set, had a flat and had so many different bed sets, it was unreal. And um, that's when I, I started doing the DJing stuff. My mate's dad, he owned, um, he owned a, a DJing hire shop. He used to hire out all DJing stuff to top DJ or two DJs. And I hired, I hired all this stuff one weekend and I thought I ain't going back with it. And it was my mate's dad and all, do you know what I mean? I... I didn't see no 
didn't see, didn't see no victims. I just didn't give a fuck, to be honest. And uh, I started DJing all around pubs, and I was getting I was getting work all around nightclubs in London. Different pubs were having me. I was getting paid. I was building a reputation up for, as being a DJ. So although I've been to prison, I'd also started working for myself and like getting a few quid. And do you know what I mean? I opened up um, a few raves myself, done a few raves. So um, she'd moved with her parents to Cambridge, yeah. Right. Around four or five years later, I think I was in my early 20s, Sean. She'd come back on the scene. This girl had come back on the scene I had the two kids with. And um, she offered me <clears throat> to move to move in with her out of the area, Cambridge. So I thought right, I'd give it a go. Moved to Cambridge. Um, her dad was a window cleaner, so he gave me a job as a window cleaner. He had a big roundup. I was DJing. I took all my equipment around there. I got a few pubs, few clubs in um, Biggles Wade nightclubs up that way. Um, Sandy, all around Cambridge Way. Doing well. I was doing really well. And we had our third kid, which was our son. Now, I stayed in Cambridge with my three kids for around two years. Um, I might have been 24, 25 or something like that, Sean. And um, I was missing my old area and I was missing London. Although I was working, I had money, we had a house, we had everything. But something was pulling me back to my old area. There was always that pull. And I said to her, I said, right, this is how it is now. I want to move out. I want to go back to London. So um, we agreed. We didn't go straight back into the middle of London. We just went on to the outskirts of it. So we got a mutual exchange, a council exchange, and um, we moved to a place called Stevenage. Um, yeah, we moved to a place called Stevenage. We've got a three-bedroom council house. I had three kids, and I'd bought a breakdown, breakdown chuck, So, and I was doing my car recovery, and I was also buying and selling cars. I was marking them up, putting them on the side of the road. Um, I was stealing cars at this time. Um, I was buying insurance right off from breakers yards, cheap, taking the uh, the logbooks and the number plates and ignition, the chassis number, or the VIN number. I was taking them off for the car, scrapping the car, and I was going out, getting new cars, putting all the identity onto these new cars, ringing cars. So I was ringing cars, uh, stealing cars, um, working on a breakdown truck, picking people up with a breakdown truck. I was doing really, really well. And I was still DJing too in this house. So my life was on track. I was working. I had money come, loads of money coming in. I remember my wallet was like that all the time. My wallet was like that when I was younger. And um, I met some guy in a pub, in a local pub in Stevenage. And he was a few years older than me. He looked a little bit scruffy. He had like black hair, long at the back. An old pair of ripped jeans on an old shirt. I got talking to him. And um, within a few 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 weeks, he started coming around my house. I was still with 
the missus and, and the three kids. And um, he had an RS Turbo and he was skinned. And I thought it was a brand spanking new RS Turbo, the Escorts. I couldn't make it out. Do you know what I mean? I thought, how's he driving a brand spanking new car? He's got like a 20 grand car and he's, he's only a few years older than me. He's never worked in his life. Cut a long story short, he was an armed robber. This was, this was probably the first time I got took to an armed robbery. Uh, my missus didn't know. I just told her I was going out working with the breakdown truck. And during the daytime, he was coming round, picking me up in the daytime. He had a 38 revolver on the back seat, underneath his back seat. And we was going into all different places. I was driving on the wheel, because you know I was good on the wheel. And he was going into these places and within 30 seconds, 60 seconds maximum, he was coming out with thousands of pounds worth of money. I see this. I've got a like, I took a liking to it. I thought, God, what am I doing here? I've got a breakdown truck. I'm killing myself, breaking my balls. He's going in somewhere. Within seconds, earning thousands of pounds, retiring money. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, that was it. I took, he took me on my first robbery. It was on a, it was on a, a scrapyard, believe it or not. What preparation did you do for that? None. He, <laughs> none whatsoever, ever. <laughs> he had been in there previously mm. to run some scrap metal in. Mm. Right. I didn't know this, but he told me. So, it was a few copper tanks what he'd run in to scrap. So, the, the owner of the scrapyard paid him in cash, but he went to the safe in the office. The door was open of the safe. There's fat wads and wads of money in the safe. My mate see it. And the door was open. But in this place, you, it's a scrapyard. They're not soft people. Do you know what I mean? They, they work with their hands for a living. <sighs> he told me about this. I shit myself. He said, look, he said, you ain't got to worry. So I've got this on the back seat. He opened the back seat up and there's a 38. Spun it around. Sorry, that's mine. Oh. Clip. You all right to put it on silent? Yeah. Thanks. Oh, okay. Sorry, Sean. Be fine. I've actually got two phones with me, Sean. So this one, the other one's off, and this one was on. Oh, okay, no worries. Sorry, Sean. It's all right. So he's got the. He's turning off track a little bit. That he's, phone call, you silly stunts. I've got it. He's got the thirty-eight. Right, so he's scrapyard, got... tough people. Cheers, Sean. Take me back on track. <laughs> so he's got the uh, 38. He's showing me the 38 and he said, look, he said, we're going, we're going to do the scrapyard. He said, I don't know how much money in there. He said, but there's a few like heavy blokes in there. He said, it's probably about six or seven blokes all working in the scrapyard. He said, don't worry. He said, all you've got to do, he said, is wait outside. I'm going to put different number plates on my car. He said, drop me off outside the gate. He said, I'm going to go in there. He said, I'm going to rob it. And I pulled up outside. Well, just opposite it, to be honest with you. He'd master plates up. It was his own car, them days. He had a white RS Turbo. He'd master plates up. He'd got out of the car, and within two minutes, he'd come back. And he had wads and wads and wads of money. As he got back in the car, in I've put the car in first gear, and I've, I've half tried, we'll spin off. I've looked around me, and I've seen all these blokes running out of the yard. There must have been 10 blokes. They had hands like shovels. 
I thought, oh my God, I'm so lucky I didn't go in there and get caught. Because if they'd have took the gun off him, we'd have got bashed right up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, did that make you rethink it or did you think we can keep doing this? Yeah, it gave me the... Um, uh, it gave me the edge to do more. Because I thought to myself, if if if, we, if I can go in there and take money off of people like that, yeah, then other other little bits of work what I'm going to do is what I'm going to do is going to be a walk in the park, and it was there was all walks in the parks. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's only later on in life I realised there's fucking victims in these crimes. I, mm. I didn't know. So yeah, this went on, and we've um, we've done another we've done a security van, um, which is on our local supermarket. It'd been there doing the surveillance on it. He'd seen the van getting dropped off, the money getting dropped off each week at a certain time. So he was doing the homework on it and he was just taking me like on the wheel because he knew I was game. So he just walk up to the guy with the gun? Yeah, well, security guards, um, one of them one of them was uh, throwing money, well, throwing money into the shovel or taking money out of the shovel, something like that. And yeah, he just like... I pulled right beside him in a car park and he just walked behind him and put a gun on his head and the bloke just dropped like that. Do you know what I mean? Dropped the bags. Um, it was mail bags then though, Sean. And there was, it was cash. Um, it wasn't security boxes. It was mail, like in a mail, in a brown, in a brown sack. There wasn't, the security boxes wasn't about then. Because they have trackers and colour dye and everything in the old years. Later on in yeah. life they did, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, we'd got, We'd done another one. We got away with this one, and I was trying to lead a normal life, um, a double life, you could say. I wasn't telling Mrs. what I was doing. Do you know, was what she I mean? wondering where the money was coming from. No, because I was buying and selling cars and had a breakdown truck, and I was earning good money. Mm. Like when I was, when I was probably like in my early twenties, I was like earning two, three grand a week, the straight way. Like picking cars up on motorways, buying and selling cars. I obviously was ringing and all, yeah. Um, so I was I was used to having bits of money around me like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, what what really put the final nail in the coffin for me with him was one day he'd come round. Um, it wasn't for a robbery, but one day he'd come round and I was working on a car out the front because I've I've, I've done mechanics courses and that um, in different prisons. I'm I'm really good with like, my hands with cars and bikes. And uh, it, it come around and um, we, we, I was in the garage working on a car and he, he said, I just want to go out the front for a minute, Joe. So I said, yeah, what? <clears throat> He's going out the front. I thought, what's he doing out there? He's out there for a bit long. He's out there for about 20 minutes. He had his music blaring. There's condensation coming down his windows. He had his arm out like that. I thought, what on earth is he doing? I didn't have a clue. I walked out the front, opened the passenger door, said, hello, mate. I said, what are you doing? He had a syringe hanging out of his arm mm. with a tourniquet, whatever you call it, around his arm, tight. He was injecting heroin. I didn't have a clue. Didn't have a fucking clue what it was. Do you know what I mean? And uh, when I see that, it frightened me. Um, I ran back into the mission. I said, look, he's, you know, I've, I told her what I'd just seen. And... Um, broke ties with him a few months went by and I don't know what made me do it but he used to live on an estate about a few miles away from me and I thought I wonder what he's up to 
like after a few months after I've jogged him on and said, don't come, you know, I've got my kids here and that, and you can't be coming around here sticking things in your arms like in front of my fucking family. It ain't going to happen because I didn't have a clue. So I'd done the right thing and jogged him on. But the, it got the better of me a little bit, so I thought I'm going to go around his house. I went around his house, knocked on his door. His car was out the front. I thought he's got to be home. So I knock on his door. And I was just going to knock on the door and make amends with it because I had half an argument with him. And not being not being known to me, look, like, I'm being known that he had a reputation as being a fucking lunatic. He was going in the local pubs around his town and having arguments saying hitting people with hammers. People were giving him money and he was like a hitman. So he was going around taking people out. He was a naughty man, dangerous, a lot dangerous than what I'd ever ever seen at this time. He was very naughty. I do remember him coming around my garage a few times during the daytime. He had just had an argument like with his missus and he had the hammer, he had a claw hammer and he was smashing it on the ground and like swearing and screaming and shouting, I'm going to fucking kill him, I'm going to kill him. He, You know, he was a fucking lunatic. So I thought I'd go and see see what was going on and just say to him, look, listen, mate, sorry it's had to work out this way, but that's not my way. You know, um, I've got a breakdown truck, I've got family, I don't want nothing to do with drugs at this time. Knocked on his door, and his, his missus answered the door. She started breaking down, crying. I said, "All right." I said, "You all right?" She said, "Where have you been?" I said, "Oh, you know, I said, I've disappeared for a few weeks." I said, um, "I've been busy working. I didn't tell her what, what I'd seen." And she'd probably obviously knew that he was on it. And she said, "He's gone." I said, "What do you mean he's gone?" And she said, "He's been recalled." Mm. I said, "Okay." I didn't know nothing about a recall at this time. I said, "What do you mean?" I didn't even know what a record meant. So I said, what do you mean he's been recalled? And she said, he's a lifer. Um, he was out on um, license for murder. And he was on life license. Um, one thing led to another and he's been recalled. So I, I was panicking now. I was thinking, he's been recalled. We've done a few robberies, you know. It's going to open up a can of worms investigation. Next thing, they're going to pull me and I'm going to get, get arrested for armed robbery. And at, at this stage, I didn't want to get nicked or nothing. So within a few weeks, I said, I said to him, I said, look, quick, get on the exchange site and put in for a mutual exchange. I've got to get out of this area. And as luck had it, there was someone in Enfield, which is in North London, um, and they agreed to do a mutual exchange, exchange with us. Still with the missus, had three kids. I'd done the right thing, Sean. I thought I've got to get out of this fucking area. So I've got out here. I've got out the area and moved into a lovely house. It had a garden, nice garden out the back. You could drive drive in the front garden, drive straight out to the back. I put like a lean to on it, on the side of the house, so you could drive out the back. It was like a garage, and um, got away from it. Um, I had a breakdown truck. Uh, there was a lot of um, a lot of travellers in this community where I've moved to, um, and I started like messing about with all these travellers, going to work with them. Um, they had they had scrap yards. They was doing scrap. He's into the same type of thing. Do you know what I mean? So I met a guy called uh, Norman um, from North London. Whilst I moved around there, he had a breakdown truck. He had a lorry. And he was into banger racing. 
So um, I was into cars, bikes, and I took to it like I couldn't wait to get enough of it. I couldn't get enough of it. He was a banger racer. He was a really established eye up, and he was in a big um, team, like a big squad behind him. His, his actual team was called the Suicide Squad. That was his banger racing team. <laughs> and it was all around the country. You're talking people from Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, all in one team, the Suicide Squad. And uh, I, joined, I joined, a banger, joined a banger racing team. So I was doing really well doing banger racing. I was loving it. There was a yard... Um, there's a yard that went up for rent on an industrial estate just around the corner from us. And my mate Norman said, right, he said, do you want to come in half? He said, we're, we're, we're opening the yard up. He said, we're, because I was um, into cutting. I had oxaline, settling propane and oxygen, and I was into cutting vehicles up. I could cut the engine and cut, I could cut the engine and the gearbox out of a full transit within five minutes. The prop shaft, the cross-member, the engine, the box gone. The shell's gone and the engine, all the bits left there in five minutes. I was that good. So I said, yeah, why not? We was both earning good money. And um, we opened this up, uh, this yard up. Well, initially, we, we only opened it up for banger racing cars. So that we had to build our, ra our racing cars. Because even with banger racing, it was fun, but it became dangerous. Um, in the, towards the end of my career of banger racing, people wasn't going out for fun. They was actually going out to take you out. I was actually going out to go into your driver's door at 40 mile an hour flat out and I was trying to kill you. It was that, it got that fucking bad. It was big rivalries in the pits one day. I turned up there with my, um, my, my banger racing team. There's probably about, I'm not even, no exaggeration, Sean, there's about 30 of us all in the pits of the banger racing team. And um, it was just a, a, a team they called the Suicide Squad. And I joined, I joined another team called the North London Nutters, right? There's probably about 20 in our side and about 30 in theirs. Well, they started painting their colours. They were painting their colours red and yellow. And we were painting our cars red and yellow for ages, from ages ago. Before they was doing their cars this colour, we were doing ours. So there's rivalry because we all look the same. And they wanted, they wanted to be separated from us. Because of like championship points and trophies and later on and things like that. I remember one day we went in there and, and there was a big argument and we a massive fight broke out. It was like an affray. We was hitting each other with monkey wrenches, spanners, hammers. There was I had a lorry, I, I owned a lorry and I had, but it was an Iveco, a seven and a half ton lorry I had at this time. I had two banger racing cars on, on the back of it. And I had my car like right in the middle of the air and I thought someone hit me around the back of the other monkey wrench do you know what I mean I had a neck brace neck brace on because I was going you've got to do that to sit in a banger and do banger racing and before I knew it was like a fucking spaghetti western in this pits it was fucking crazy <laughs> the fight went on for about 20 minutes half hour and it was all about colours we was racing in their colours <laughs> <laughs> It got that bad. So we, we didn't agree to change our colours, so we went out as rivalries. <laughs> we went out as rivalries for a few months, Sean. So you can imagine, when one of us was, you had like, um, on this track, you had like big metal iron culvert around the outside, post. 
like with barriers. And if if one of us was like, put what what you do, if there's something in front of you, you hit him up the arse. You wouldn't just hit him up the arse. You put your foot flat on the throttle, and you'd be heading for the bend, and you wouldn't let him go. You'd follow him in into the bend. <laughs> so your bonnet would be near their fucking front wheels. Their car would be up on the. They'd be in a bad way a lot of the time. And, um, yeah, me, one of my mates one day, um, he was sitting on, on the top on a bend and you can't get out of your car. If your car smashed to bits, it's illegal to get out of it because you've got other drivers going around. But you've got a big light, you, you've got to put a bigger caravan mirror inside your interior so you can see behind you because you're not allowed to have no wing mirrors on. And I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind my mate as he's sitting in this iron coving. So I'm going, going up. He's on the inside. I'm on the outside. I'm going round like this. I've looked in the mirror and I've seen another te- another member from the other team. He's in the he's in the bend already. And I see this fella. He must have been doing thirty mile an hour. He stopped at the top of the bend, put it in first, gone through the gears, and my mate's on on the bend at the top. He's hitting with so much force. The roll cage dropped down. And you've got a big um, water tank, which you've got to put in the front of the cars because you're not allowed to run with radiators. So the pipes had split on the water tank and the pipes were running down by your foot, by your pedals, your clutch and your accelerator. And I think there was like 25 gallons of boiling hot water. He had a full harness on. He couldn't get out of the car. The car was like that. Do you know what I mean? It was like a U-shape. He couldn't get out the, out, the, out the windscreen because it was like push right in. The door, you couldn't get out through the windows. He sat in that car for, it felt like minutes. But he had 20 gallons of boiling hot water going onto both of his legs. Oh. Fucking horrendous, mate. Horrendous. How'd you get him out in the end? Air ambulance. An air ambulance. They had to stop the race because they didn't really, it was that bad. They stopped the race. I remember, it, I remember it vividly. Do you know what I mean? The stretchers running on there and they rushed him off. It was one, one of my really good mates. Was the repercussions for the guy who did it or was it just part of the game? Part of the game. Uh, that's what... So, I quickly, it quickly became apparent to me that this wasn't fun. Um, you've got a chance of going out and dying because people think banger racing, uh, Sean, what they think is you can get an old banger, Rusty, off the road with no MOT, put a roll cage in it and race it around the track. If you do that, you're going to die. Because if that car's got rust in it and it's rotten and it's come and comes into your door at 40, 50 mile an hour, corrosion, you're dead. Do you know what I mean? So at that time, I was getting arrested quite a lot for taking and driving away because I was taking like brand new motors out of people's, off people's drives. I was stripping them out, brand new motors, and racing them on the track. Absolutely. So after a couple of years of that, I finally realised I've got I've got to stop. I, I did get arrested. The final now was I got arrested. Um, it's funny how I got arrested actually, because I've stolen um, a Mark II Granada. There was a big um, meeting coming up called the Firecracker. It was um, firework night, so um, you had to um, you had to have a have a big big car to race it, to race this fire fire track, and obviously you couldn't. Um, you couldn't go and steal a, you couldn't go and, as I said, get an old banger. So I see an old uh, Rover 110 
um, in this front garden around the corner from me. I don't know what made me do it, but I did. I stole the rover. I didn't even, I just got my, because I know I have a lorry, I leaned the arm over to the front garden, put the chains around it and pulled it out of the garden, this car. Got it in the back of my truck, took it home, stripped it all out. It was a Rover 110, it was worth thousands. Painted it, took it to the firecracker. Like I went into the um, the death and destruction, the, the death in, in the end, where it's called the last car standing. And there's only three of us. I made it right to the end. Anyway, car got obliterated. I didn't get no injuries, as luck at it. But the tractor come and pulled my car into the pits, right? And there was loads of spectators because spectators were allowed to go into the pits. And I've noticed this guy, he was about my age, looked the ovals on, a bit greasy. I thought he's a mechanic. Anyway, he was looking in my car, my car. He went away. Five minutes later, he's come back and he said, uh, he said to me, I said, oh, mate, you've done well there, didn't you? I said, yeah. I said, obliterate it. Look at it. Look at it. He said, you've done really well. I said, can you pop the bonnet a minute, mate? I popped the bonnet, showed him. He said, I want to see the engine. He said, that's got some engine in it. It was a three-litre manual. He said, I said, he said, it's got some engine. I said, yeah. I said, no, it done well, didn't it? Anyway, cut a long story short. At the end of it, put the car on the back of my lorry and we was driving up the, um, f coming from um, Farrock, West Farrock. Um, it was one of the turnoffs up the M25, Dagenham Romford ran that way. It was a track called Arena Essex Raceway. So I was driving down this motorway with me car on the back. All of a sudden, I've seen police coming up this motorway the wrong way. I'm thinking, no way, surely they're not for me. You've got to be choking. I was all briefed up. The lorry was all briefed up. It wasn't stolen. Anyway, he's pulled me up. He said, uh, where have you just come from? I said, uh, the banger racing track. He said, oh, yeah. He said, do you mind me looking at the car? I said, no, go on, mate. On this car, you had like a VIN number on the floor by the driver's seat. So I've got to choose one, banged it out. There was no numbers on it, no identification on it, no, VIN, no numbers. No chassis numbers. Bang the engine number off. He said, do you mind me uh, looking at your car? I said, no, go on. And a few minutes went by. He'd gone on his radio. And he said, sorry, he said, you've got to come with me. I said, what for? He said, uh, we talked to you about it at the police station, Gray's police station. I said, all right then. I couldn't believe it. Gone back to Gray's police station. Under the interview... It come out in the, at the end of it. The guy what was looking around my motor was a banger racer himself. He knew that he had such a good car and if his car got stolen, it'd have to be at that meeting that day. So I was arrested for taking and driving away his motor. So basically, I knew, where, I got arrested and they bowed me out, but I knew where he lived. So I was bowed not to like go around his house and, not interfere with witnesses. But where I was in a big circle of um, people like my own, all mechanics and all banger racers, he was a banger racer. I thought he's one of my own. I'm going to go around there. Oh, fucking crazy. I knocked on his door. He's missing the answer door. He's kid. And uh, he said, who are you? I said, I, I said, I'm the guy. Was it a banger racing track? I said, and um, 
I had your motor. He said, so you stole my motor? I said, to be honest with you, I said, I'm not going to lie. I said, yeah. I said, listen, I said, you're a banger racing bloke the same as me. I said, don't tell me you don't go out and steal cars. I said, because that's the game, right? So we come to an agreement. He said, you're right. He said, as it happens, he said, you're bang right. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, give me a few hundred quid for the car. I think it was about 500 quid them days. That was a lot of money. I said, why do you want so much money? He said, because I've spent thousands on the engine. It was a fully race-tuned engine done by a big firm called Burton, a racing engine. <laughs> he spent thousands on his car, and it wasn't a banger car. He was using it as his road car, but he'd put a, a racing engine in it. Do you know what I mean? Like, anyway, cut a long story short, it, the charges got dropped and um, life went back to normal. But um, I stopped banger, after that, I did stop banger racing because I realised that I could die doing this. Especially after we had the big argument on the pits, we had a big fight. We was, race, we was arguing about the colours of the cars. I thought this is just gone <laughs> fucking insane. <laughs> I thought this is insane. Mm. Anyway, I stopped banger racing over that incident, right? So, like my mate said to me, right, we'll, we'll rent this yard out on this industrial estate, which we had for the banger racing cars. Well, I had a few youngsters, Sean, coming up to me because I was known now in the area as being in the yard as buying stolen vans and trucks. It's got to be a Ford, got to be a Transit. Right. I had a mate in another breaker's yard, which was exporting in a container once a month, Ford engines and trucks. So I was on this yard in North London, on this industrial estate, and I had all these youngsters coming up to me, bringing me stolen transits and trucks for the engines and boxes. So the more money I was giving, the more that was coming. They was going out in the mornings following like... Um, you know, uh, delivery drivers, what, deliver newspapers. They was going out early hours in the morning and, like, waiting for, the, for them to deliver the newspaper, stealing the truck and bringing the truck around to me. I was selling that, doing that, selling that much. And um, we had this bloke just up the road buying the engines and gearboxes. Fuck, it was only a fortune, me and my mate. We uh, opened up a car front, a second-hand car front on Enfield High Street. We had about 15, 20 cars on there, all marked up for sale. <laughs> Half of them was ringers. <laughs> Fucking absolutely. And then, and then my mate said to me, right, he said, um, we're going to take it one step further. He said, do you know anything about smelting? So uh, I said, no. He said, right, he said, my mate's going to come around here and we're going to build a big smelter out of fire bricks. It's going to have two big burners in the back of it and we're going to burn aluminium barrels. I said, all right, then, sweet. So now I've got people going out stealing aluminium barrels from the back of conservative club, clubs, British legions, <laughs> pubs, nightclubs. I had hundreds and hundreds of barrels during the daytime going in this smelting machine, smelting them into alley barrels, into blocks, and we were selling that at the end of the, end of the week. We were earning fucking fortunes. But because we was in there such a while, we had all our own tools. We had our lorries in there, you know, because by this time I built up quite a little empire. We had vans, trucks, lorries in there. And we went to go work one morning and my mate who had the yard next door to me, he said, 
do not come in. Do not come in. I said, why? He said, they're all over your yard. He said, there's helicopters up and everything. There's police dogs. He said, they're all in the fucking yard. So we was under surveillance. We didn't know because we was running the um, aluminium barrels and there was smoke going up and it was a lot of filling the clouds up with smoke and <laughs> fucking insane, mate. We was under surveillance. And we, we left, we had to leave the lot. So we lost literally everything. Lost all our lorries, all our money. What, you didn't get nicked over it? We didn't get nicked. We didn't go back to the yard. So we didn't get nicked, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. But we lost all that. We lost everything. And I, I didn't have a bank account at that time. You not put anything away? No. So you got to start from scratch. Yeah. So although I, I had all that money and I was earning all that, it just all went up and it all went in. We lived on it for a few weeks and I was still buying and selling trucks at the time. Still doing all right. And we moved to Enfield, as I said, we was there for about a year, 13, 14 months. I got another beer in my bonnet. And, I, and I, although I built up a, a new load of friends, none of them was into the, the stuff what I got up to from South London. Because these were all North London mates, so they was more into like they weren't they weren't really into robberies or thieves. Those into motors, ringing motors and scrap yards and things like that. So I said to I, I said to the miss, I said, look, I want to move back to uh, my old area. I don't know what made me do it. I think I fell out with a few of the boys in my local area. Sean, um, they see me as a threat. The boys, what was around the area, what was bought up in North London. Because I was a new kid on the block down there, they see me as a threat and I was I was taking all their custom. They because they was into the scrap cars, buying and selling vans and trucks. And to be honest with you, I was um I was like selling engines and gearboxes so cheap, I was doing them all out of all out of pocket. And quite a few of them took a disliking to me, do you know what I mean? So I felt a little bit out of place around there. Although I had a few mates, I still felt a bit out of place. I didn't feel at home around there, never felt settled. And um, we moved back to, um, we had got an exchange from Stevenage and uh, we moved to um, Croydon, got an exchange back to Croydon, which was only three or four miles away from where I originally come from. Um, I was, by this time, Sean, I was 25, maybe 26, something like that around that age. We moved moved back to yeah, we moved back to Croydon and um I bumped back into a few of my old friends. They was coming round for me during the daytime and I was trying to trying to stop them coming round. I was tried my hardest to like keep them away away from me. But there was just something there saying come with me, come with me, come with me. So I started uh, hanging about with a few of my old mates who I was brought up with and who I was committing robberies and thieving things with. Um, I was only back around my area for a month and I went back to my old ways. So although I I built up this empire and this big businesses, when I went back to my old area, I went back to Skint with nothing um, apart from obviously what we had around us at the time. This was 96, Sean. 
um, my mum had moved to Littlehampton with my stepdad as we'd gone over. Um, my mum became ill with secondary cancer. Mm. I'd only been back, back in the area for three weeks when my mum became ill, getting me secondary cancer. Um, she got took back into the Royal, Mount, Royal Marsden Hospital with the secondary cancer. She had a lump come up on her neck um, and they diagnosed it as a cyst. By the time, that was in um, a, a local hospital in St George's, but by the time we got to the, uh, the major hospital, which is where she had her breast removed, it had gone all over her body. And um, they, they, they diagnosed her term, terminal. So I've got, I've got my old mates pushing, pulling me, come with me. I'm arguing with her, the missus and the kids. I was young, didn't really want to settle down, although I did, and I got a job, and I was putting money on the table, food on the table, I was clothing my kids. I wasn't really, I was too young, do you know what I mean, Sean, to settle down. Um, so yeah, my mum, mum had moved and um, I was uh, driving up to um, Littlehampton in my breakdown lorry for a good few months visiting my mum in my lorry uh, while she had the secondary cancer. And um, she got talking, she died of secondary cancer, mm. breast cancer. It killed her. It was all there when my mum died. It was all in the same room. My stepdad was still there. John was still there. But by, at this, by this time, sorry. Okay, all right. By this time, I accepted him as, as loving my mum and I didn't want to harm him because he, st he stood by my mum through thick and thin and she never, ever give up on him. And it's still... After today, I questioned myself why she didn't give up on him for her kids. It's because she loved him, Sean. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, within a, we we was going out to visit her while she had the secondary cancer, me and my uh, two sisters. My oldest sister, Pamela, she'd actually moved to um, Littlehampton. So she'd bought a house around the corner from my mum. So she was up there. And me and Angela, my, my younger just a few years older, we were going up visiting my mum. And on the last few days, um, she got taken into a little uh, tiny hospice in Littlehampton. Um, and we stayed up for two days and two nights and she died in my arms. Literally in my arms. Wow. Um, just before she died, the vicar come to the end of the bed and started reading her last rites. Um, it was the thing called the, uh, the death rattles she had. Mm. It's not nice to see it, mm. especially from someone we love so dearly and you're so close to. It broke me an arse on. Um, and uh, he was reading her last rites and I said, can, can, can my mum hear me? Can I talk to her? And he said, yeah. He said, just carry on talking to her. I put her in my arms and I went forward and she died. All my family was in the room. 
I took her gold off her. I put her head forward and her head went like that. It, it fucked me up, really. Give me a breakdown, Sean. Yeah. Broke me and laughed. A few weeks after that, my missus kicked me out. So three weeks after my mum died, my missus kicked me out with me, uh, me missus and my kids. Um, I moved in with my sister. But yeah, I was a broken man. I was completely broken off. Um, I didn't care whether I lived, died. I, I actually didn't care. I, it didn't bother me. What went on from there, life just didn't didn't matter to me, Sean. I didn't want to be here no more. Um, I didn't have the courage to kill myself because of, I was thinking about my two sisters because I've got a very, very close family, Sean, and they're still very close to me now. Really fucking close. So tight. Even on the way down to here, like, they're, you know, really tight. So um, I moved in with uh, my, one of my sisters um, and I, I, um, I met um, a few of my old um, mates who I was brought up with. And by this time, I'd split up with my missus and my kids. My mum had died and and they was um, into big things. I was gullible. I was uh, not, un I wasn't under duress, Sean, because I was doing it off my own free will. But when I say, it, when I was going into these places with guns, it didn't bother me at all if I come out and I got shot because I didn't want to be there. I really didn't want to be there no more. I just wanted to go with my mum. So it happened really quickly as it happens. After my mum died, my missus kicked me out. I was living with my sister. Uh, a few of my mates had their own places around the corner from where I lived. And um, I said, right, you can move in with us. So there's about 10 of us living in this, this house. We was going out every day. Um, the gang leader, the ringleader, come back one day. He had a hold all. He had about five or six firearms in there, guns in there. This is before I even put my hands on a gun. Showed me how to use it. Showed me how to cock it. Showed me how to load it. Showed me what ammunition to put on it, what goes with what. And um, we started... Um, having a party, because there was 10 of us in the house. So we started partying really hard, you know, not one or two days, it was just non-stop partying. Uh, we were sniffing cocaine at the time, um, probably about rapidly, rapid. It's probably within three months, I was sniffing so much cocaine, I wasn't getting the same high off it, and it wasn't doing nothing to me. At this time, by this stage, my friend um, learned how to free base. So he was washing cocaine up and turning it into crack. And I, it soon, soon became apparent to me that this was a, a high that I've never had before. And it was such a good high, I couldn't get off the ride. I just could not seem to get off the ride. It was too fast. I had nothing to live for. Um, I was a dangerous man. 
very dangerous man. So uh, we started um, going out. I was um, on a motorbike riding, uh, and a few cars. We were chopping and changing cars. Um, I was always the, on the front, on the gunman. I was always the front man. In towards the end of it, I was the one going in there first. Um, we started robbing um, little building societies. Uh, I had a thirty-eight revolver. My, my other Cody had a side-by-side -side 410 shotgun. It's going into building societies. Um, screens, dad security screens at this time. So uh, I was letting shots off in the roof before I was going in there to know that we main business. We was in there for no more than two minutes maximum and we've gone in the car gone changed cars out of our clothes on a bike in another van we was home and this went on and on and on for about three years so we was out we was out at least um, four times a week committing robberies arm robberies heavy ones Sometimes I went in, I was going into like post offices, the screens were coming down, the security screens, as soon as they see me, because I was going in with full balaclava, ovals, gloves. Couldn't see nothing on my face. The screens were coming down, I was going bang, I was blowing the roofs out. And then we'd done so many. Look. When we was going out to commit more, we started noticing police outside all the main post offices, all the main banks, all the main big money places. They was under surveillance outside all these places. But we wasn't just robbing in southwest London. We was going over north London. We was going over east London, west. But every time we went in south London, every job we went on towards the end, we'd notice people outside there. I don't know whether the I don't know whether the crack got give us psychosis and we're paranoid. Whether there was police, whether there was our marked policemen waiting outside these places for us, I, I just don't know. But yeah, three years into it, probably done about 150 arm robberies. Wow. Um, the crack got worse and worse and worse. The dealer, my dealer, before he was getting home, I was ringing him back up again, ordering more crack. So in the end, he moved in with us. Oh, shit. He moved in with us. And on my own, I was spending over £2,000 a day oh, on my own. Man. And at this time, both my sisters was aware of what was going on because I was telling them, and also, the guys what I was rolling with was from my area and they had a reputation of being heavy. So they knew I was rolling with them. They knew what type of work they was doing. They knew I was involved with it. Both my sisters, numerous times, was ringing each other up saying, 
he's just committed a burglary. Let us give the information to someone, get the police and get them arrested. Both my sisters couldn't come round to picking the phone up, getting me arrested for the burglaries or anything like that. But that's what the plan was. Someone wanted to, in my family wanted to get me arrested for burglaries to stop me getting murdered by the police or getting arrested for the armed robberies. But they could never get, they could never, where they loved me that much, they couldn't do it. They couldn't pick the phone up. So they lived in fear for three years. Me going round her house. At one time, one time I went round to my sister's house and my car broke down, Angela. And um, it was a spur of a moment thing and, and she had a car out the front. I said, do you mind me borrowing your car? She said, no, where are you going? I said, I need around the corner. I've just got to go and pick someone up. And she said, yeah, go on. And with that, I took her car and committed an armed robbery in her car, in my sister's car. Um, got away with it, got back. All the police had come round, pulled my sister in and said, there's been an armed robbery committed in this car. Can you tell me who, who, where the car was at this certain time? I don't know how I got away with it, Sean, but I actually got away with it at that time. They couldn't keep a track of me. I was never in one place too long. I was changing vehicles. So it just rained and rained and rained. In the end, you know, we, all of my gang was just bouncing off each other. We was going to uh, Broughton Road in Brixton, which is a front line for drug dealers. Um, it's, it's notorious for drug dealers, Broughton Road. We was going down there and um, I was acting as a cab driver. So... I had a bogus cab here on the back of my car. Um, my code, one of my co-defendants were going up to the front line of drug dealers saying to them, look, there's a taxi here. Get in a taxi. We, have, we, we want some crack off you. And we was going around and robbing them. It was, I was getting in the back of the car. We was pulling guns out and we was taking all the crack and money off of them. So we had people all around the place looking for us to kill us. We just didn't care. It didn't stop there. We didn't care because every single where we went, I had a gun on me. As I said, I don't care if I got shot or got killed. Um, I think this is a good place to stop because we've run out of studio time and um, this is going to go on for more, way, way more hours. Like we're on two pages. It's probably going to go for like... But, but hold, hold on a second. Uh, yeah, yeah, hold on a second. Um, for the people watching this then, I mean, that time, just it's just gone like that, absolutely. Um, Joe, you have like a photographic memory. You've got all these details. I mean, some people come in, I ask them a question, and they give like a little 10-second answer. Yeah. Man, you have set the table on your life history. Like, you're up there. On the storytelling that's ability. That's what you wanted to do. Uh, You're way up there. That's what I wanted to do. Man, you've, you've absolutely done brilliant. And I'm not even halfway through it, Sean. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm we're stopping now. Because it. there's going to be at least another three hours of this. I can feel it in my bones. You see, um, So for the people watching this, um, let us know what you thought about this in the comments. This is 35 Years in UK Prison Part 1 with Joe. If you've just sat there and been as gripped as me then I'm sure these comments are going to be absolutely amazing and you all want, you know, want to see 
Joe on back very soon. Not just as, you know, from this storytelling ability, but just the raw honesty, you know, his relationship with his mom, the emotional ups and downs of everything. This is just classic storytelling at its finest. So I'm sure you guys are all as, as gripped as me and can't wait for um, a follow-up part to this. And um, huge thank you to all the people who are supporting the channel. Subscription logo is in this bottom corner here. Um, huge thank you to Joe and James for sitting here all day doing this with us, um, our sound engineer and cameraman. And um, huge thank you for you guys for you know for supporting what we're doing. Joe's links are going to be in the description box. His book again is a South London Borstal Boys Tales. I'll also put the link down there for his YouTube channel. Um, he says he's not been posting very much on it, but I'm sure you guys will want to go out and check out what he's doing. Huge thank you to people who've gone down as well and clicked on our socials, our donation links, and everything else. All right, man, give us a hug. That was absolutely fantastic.